You are now listening to the Let's Watch Tea podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Let's Watch Two podcast. A podcast with aspirations of discovering the ultimate double feature. My name is Sam, I'm your host and joining me today are friends and fellow film enthusiasts Matt and Sarah. Matt and Sarah produce a YouTube channel called Amateur Filmies in which they share and give insight into films and their recent Blu-ray pickups. Whilst not exclusive to the genre, they collectively boast an impressive knowledge of horror films. So I reached out to them and I knew they would make a great fit for the show. So welcome, Matt and Sarah. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. So I've been following you guys on um, on YouTube for quite some time. Um, and it's uh, the likes of yourselves and uh, Elliot Cohen and a few other YouTubers that inspired myself to start producing my own content and uh, I reached out to you a while back to see if you were interested in um, being part of this adventure into making a podcast about films because other than watching films my favorite thing to do is talk about films so um, yeah I thought you'd be a really good fit for the show. Thank you and we really appreciate you asking us because uh, podcast doing a podcast type of thing has always been something that's been of interest to us. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate the opportunity to come and, you know, give it a go. Obviously we we'll, I'm sure we'll stumble a few times, but you know, it's all part of, you know, getting practice. And as you've already said, like just being able to talk to a fellow film enthusiast about, you know, films in general and just analyzing films and just being able to have this discussion is great because it's really, I don't know about you, but like, there's not many people in our personal lives that like movies the to this, yeah, to, to the, the sort of degree thing. that we do. Um, exactly. It's really hard to sort of find people, especially, you know, where we live in Australia, there's like even, you know, in the rural area, there's really not that many people to talk to. So being able to go online and talk to people like yourself and others in the YouTube community, it's always fantastic. So we, again, we really appreciate it. No, you're more than welcome. So this episode is going to focus on the 1983 film Videodrome, directed by David Cronenberg and the 1988 film uh, They Live, directed by John Carpenter. And if uh, any of the listeners out there are new here, the general format of the show is to discuss two films um, at first individually, and then together as a pairing with the similarities and differences noted and the strength of the film as a double feature debated. Um, and running along the theme of the uh, previous couple of shows we've done, um, before jumping into talking about those two films, we like to just ease ourselves in by having a brief discussion about some of the other films that we've been watching recently. So, Amateur Filmies, what have you been watching recently? I'll let Sarah go first. Okay. Uh, just because we actually, it's funny, we actually got our letterbox accounts open because we've been watching an absolutely insane amount of movies recently. Yeah. So we're going to try, I know when I get asked on the spot, I tend to forget what I've actually watched recently. So we've got our list, but I'll let Sarah go first. So we've been working through our UK, UK Criterion pickups um, that we've got recently. That includes um, Diabolique, um, a bunch of Wes Anderson movies that mm -hmm. we'll probably release a video of tonight. Uh, not gonna drop our name drop our videos uh recently <laughs> today we watched uh marriage story with my parents we'd ah, already seen that one but it what, was uh, what, what awesome. do you think of noah bombach in general i think this is my first noah bombach film oh really uh, interesting so, 
Oh, yeah. and did like, you like really it? Obviously, if you watched it twice. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's not my favourite barn back, but it's uh, definitely one of the better ones he's put out recently. Um, Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, like, from, from his filmography. For sure. Um, I think I've seen every film of Noah Baumbach's. Um, oh wow! I think my favourite <laughs> of his is a is a toss up between um, uh, the Squid and the Whale. I think that's from mm-hmm. two thousand from two thousand and five, and it stars like Jeff Daniels and um, a young uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Um, that's a fantastic film. It's very short as well. It's only like an hour and 15 minutes long, but it's like oh, wow. perfectly met, like written. The, the, the script is so well well done. Um, so that's a fantastic one. And then the other one of note is Francis Ha. Oh, which oh he, yeah, with Greta Gerwig. Yeah, he co-wrote that one with Greta Gerwig. Um, it's funny. And, <laughs> oh, sorry, go on. Uh, it's just an amazing film. That one was, um, yes, the stylistic choices in that one to shoot it in black and white was really interesting. But yeah, it's just sort of like a, a love letter to New York and just sort of following your dreams and stuff. And it's just very funny and just really, really great film. Um, he's got some other good films. Um, he made a film called um, While We're Young, which has got Ben Stiller in and Adam Driver. And then there was mm-hmm. a Netflix one called um, The Mayowitz Stories. Oh, yeah. I didn't that's realize got... it was him. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote and directed that one as well. It's got Adam Sandler and um, Dustin Hoffman in it and that's that's yeah. also really good so yeah i recommend pretty much checking out everything is made because they're <laughs> some of them are absolute masterpieces and the other ones that aren't are still like quite good and really interesting so yeah i highly recommend checking out anything by noah Baumbach. i'm quite a big fan so i was looking at the backstory to marriage story and i believe it was the story is inspired by you know noah Baumbach's own marriage breakdown with jennifer jason lee Mm-hmm. And I think Greta Gerwig was sort of like the other woman. And I mean, no, I just I think it's really interesting where, you know, That's art imitates life. And yeah, yeah, I yeah exactly. I completely agree with that. There's definitely a lot of um, Noah Baumbach's own um, real life experiences um, written into his films. Um, and Greta Gerwig, obviously, have you seen Lady Bird? Yes, I love that movie. Yeah, so that's that's very much based on Greta Gerwig's like sort of teenage years and coming of age sort of thing. Not not like exactly um, event for event that happened in her life, but the, the tone and the general relationship she had with her mother and things like that was um, was very much inspired the story and the, and and the film in general. So yeah, um, big fan of those for those two filmmakers. Yeah, that's probably why it feels very authentic. But in contrast, we actually recently watched The Void, which is sort of like a Lovecraftian cosmic horror. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, the um, the special effects, particularly in that film, are superb. Like the the practical effects. Absolutely. Yeah, I I absolutely adored The Void. It was one of those movies that had been on my watch list for so long, and being a big fan of like you know, cosmic horror or, you know, anything sort of Lovecrafty and inspired, I knew that I had to watch it. And I'm very glad that it didn't let me down because I, I had read mixed things and I can't, after watching it, I can definitely see why it would be the divisive type of film, yeah, but of it course. definitely played to my personal taste for sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. There's another film that's similar to that and like the Lovecraftian type horror. It's got, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it's got Nick Cage, Nicolas Cage in it. It's called The Color of Space, I think. Oh, we actually bought that today. <laughs> oh, okay. So you not watched it yet? No. No, not yet. Yeah, we literally bought it at the same time that we bought this new mic and the uh, audio splitter. We got a couple of Blu-rays. We got 
Color Out of Space, uh, Brawl in the Cell Block 99, which I have watched and thought that was really, really fun. And what was the other one we got? Um, Little Monsters, which is like a Australian zombie film with Lupita yeah. Nyong'o. It's actually yeah. really fun. Yeah, I've seen that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really, I really enjoy it. I, quite, I love my zombie films. Yeah, they're, they're guilty pleasure for all. Yeah, I mean, not my favourite genre. <laughs> yeah, I say a guilty pleasure. We should, you shouldn't feel guilty. I love zombie films. There's so many great ones, but to be fair, we have watched a lot of bad ones too. But oh, yeah. There's always something to enjoy in them, isn't there? Yeah, even the bad ones are good. <laughs> what else have you watched there? Um, so I've watched The Witch in the Window, which I was slightly disappointed at because I know, like, I think it was an indie film. Well, it feels very indie. And I'd heard some pretty good things about it, but I just feel like it was really creepy at times, but it could have been a lot scarier. Mm. Like they could have done a bit more with the way that the witch looked and her presence. Like it could have been a bit more sort of uh, freakier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> have you seen that one, Sam? Have you heard of I it? I'm not. I'm not aware of that one. No. Yeah, it's um, I, I hadn't really heard of it. Is it a contemporary sort of film? Is it, it is it a recent release? Yep. So it came out in 2018, and I think it's on Shudder. Right. Yeah, actually, we, we, need, we just got Shudder in Australia, actually. We haven't tested out the trial yet, but it was always one of those streaming services that we always wanted to be a part of, where we couldn't join up because it was a US exclusive, I think. But we're hoping that by coming to Australia, we're going to have access to a lot of other films we wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, The Witch in the Window was one that was on there. Um, we got the DVD of it. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had to make do with that, which was obviously fine for us because we yeah. love collecting, but... Yeah, sometimes it's good to be able to trial a movie on a streaming service, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, and um, I was just looking at our list. We've definitely got a lot of other movies. We'd be talking here forever if we had to even just talk about yeah. the movies we'd seen this month. Yeah, just this month. <laughs> um, but some of the other movies I've watched, I uh, so we, Sarah mentioned earlier, our next video is going to be our Criterion sale from the Zavi sale yeah. um, that they put on a, few, a while back. But we also partook in the Barnes & Noble sale, so we picked up a few Criterions, and one of the ones that I got was the Bruce Lee box set. Um, oh, awesome! Very jealous. You. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um fantastic. I actually I grew up watching those movies on VHS back when I was like six or seven years old. So it was a real treat to actually be able to watch these in like you know great looking edition. Like it's a great looking edition with so many supplements. But um, I've just been powering through all the, through all of them. I've watched uh, three out of five. Three out of five so far. I've watched Fist of Fury, Enter the Dragon, and Way of the Dragon. Um, all fantastic movies. Have you seen many of um, Bruce Lee's films or any of them? Um. I don't think I have, no, which is why I wanted to pick up the Criterion edition. But it was, yeah, it's an exclusive US release, and to import that box set is, is uh, really expensive. So I think I'm going to have sure. to wait, wait for that one at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we got, um, we got, uh, lucky with a very um good deal on amazon australia we got like free shipping and it did drop significantly in price so it's since shot up but we definitely got lucky at the time um the other stuff that we've been watching i another criterion edition that i got in was uh, come and see the russian war movie have you are you familiar with it i am familiar with that i um, managed to watch that a couple of weeks ago about three four weeks ago i should say and How did uh, you find it? it absolutely blew me away um yep. i'd probably put it as a contender for the best war film ever made and I agree. Uh, I'm that's so, a big call yeah it is um have you not seen it sarah no yeah uh, i was gonna say she's saying it's a big call she didn't watch she didn't watch it with me at the time i'm, I'm yeah. sure she'd like it but wasn't but in yeah, the mood at the time like, like yeah the, the term like is uh, a strange one to use for that film but um yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is um it is one of the more sort of 
harrowing and like real realistic depictions of like the atro atrocities that happened um absolutely during the war and yeah um definitely contender for one of the greatest war films ever made um yeah the um the transformation that the oh, can, i don't know the name of the the kid actor in this film alexander <laughs> alexander alexander something i think but he, his performance is just absolutely gripping and harrowing and yeah the things that he goes through on screen um it's uh the film is very reminiscent of um are you very familiar with andre tarkovsky films uh, also, I'm familiar with them. I only to the point of having read about them. I haven't actually watched. Sure. I, I yeah, I have had um, Stalker and Solaris for so long, but I just haven't sat down to actually experience them yet. I would say that those are the sort of films that you have to be in the right mindset to watch, um, and with particular Stalker, which I would class as one of my very favourite films, like in like my top fifty films of all time. I've seen. Wow thousands of films and stalker is up there for sure but it was a film on my first watch that it didn't really click with me um mm -hmm. i still i was really i was still impressed with like the cinematography and the, the music in it's very good but there was something like emotionally and just about it that didn't quite click and then for mm -hmm. some reason i uh, a few years later after the first viewing i was like oh, i'm gonna watch that again just because i was just intrigued to see what a second viewing would do and by the end of it i was just absolutely floored it's a really great example for me personally of how repeated viewings can really change your mind on a film because you can't grasp all the concepts and what the film's trying to say to you on on one viewing alone when it's quite richly layered and quite dense with themes um mm. so yeah um but it's definitely one you can't just put on casually you have to like make sure you've you're not tired and you've got plenty of time to you've got a lot of um headspace to absorb everything that's going on in it but um yeah yeah trying but, to make sure you're in the right frame of mind yeah that was a bit of a tangent what i was trying to say that it was come and see uh is quite similar to some of tarkovsky's films particularly mirror um that came out in 1975 there's a lot of sort of dreamy um ethereal camera shots and stuff that are really quite beautiful i thought particularly you you'll know from the film there's a scene where a young girl is like dancing in the rain and there's like a rainbow yeah. and that's very reminiscent of like tarkovsky um but yeah come and see uh, if you're listening out there and you've not seen it yet i highly recommend it it is one of the best films i've seen for quite a number of years um yeah so come and see <laughs> I definitely agree with that. Yeah, mm. absolutely harrowing movie. And again, it was one that I had known about for so long. I even had like a cheeky copy on my hard drive for a long time and sort of put it off because it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the best quality, but I'm so glad that I did put it off because then Criterion obviously announced a absolutely, like, I was so glad to hear that they announced a copy of it because you know that given that it's Criterion, it's going to be a good release. And I got my hands on it straight away and it definitely did not let me down. I also very, very highly recommend it just how the lead um the lead actor he just communicates such like brutal emotion just with his face like doesn't even have to say or, or yell yeah. anything just like seeing the look on on his face how he portrays yeah it's just absolutely fantastic and i do agree as well that i think it is up there with one of the best war movies of all time at least from the ones that i've seen but yeah again it's not you have to be in the right mood for it yeah um because it is it will destroy your soul i think yeah. watching it but <laughs> it's yeah up there for sure and 
on sort of on the flip side we've also um as far as other movies that we've watched we i think may have mentioned already i'm not sure to you sam but we got some vinegar syndrome titles as well oh, sweet. and sort of been yeah we've been walk, uh, working our way through some of those in preparation for our next video and um yeah we've watched some pretty funny ones we watched uh, tammy and the t-rex have you familiar with that one uh, yeah i'm familiar with that one the the vinegar syndrome version has like the the pg-13 version and the r-rated version in it doesn't it yes that's right yeah, yeah because i know the pg the pg rating one after because after watching it well obviously we watched the r-rated gore cut or whatever yeah, of it's course. called <laughs> and i just i can't imagine watching it any other way yeah. it's, it's interesting they included it as an extra but i just i feel so sorry for anyone who had to first watch that without the gore in it because the <laughs> gore just makes the movie it's so, such a fun time and um another vinegar syndrome title that we watched as well i well at least i watched was extra three are you familiar with the extra movies Oh, I've seen the first one, but not beyond that. Yeah, so we got Extra 3, which is an excellent-looking edition. Not necessarily an excellent movie. I think that would be a bit too high praise, but it's still a really good fun time. I love the sort of creature effects. It's clearly low-budget, but still a fun time. And, um, you know, we've, as I said, we've got a few... I got a few other Vinegar Syndrome tiles we've been working with. I through. watched The Candy Snatchers, which was a really good one. You liked that too, yeah, didn't you, Sarah? I, was, I thought it was up there with um, the original Last House on the Left. In fact, I, I think I enjoyed it more than the original Last House on the Left. Cause it's, oh, wow. It's sort of... I mean, the, the plot lines are quite similar, aren't they? Yeah, in a way, for sure. And I, I think we talked about this before as well, Sarah, off-camera, but like, I think they'd make a really good double billing, like watching them yeah, together. absolutely. For sure, Interesting yeah. idea and, for the show in the future, maybe. <laughs> oh possibly yeah it could be a good idea um and yeah just a couple of other ones because again i we, we've watched so many movies so i should probably stop talking about them soon but we've also watched uh, night beast which was an absolute ball loved that one and well sorry i watched night beast sarah's yet to watch that one but we also watched spookies which was fantastic um the the effects in that alone are just w worth watching it's it's one of the most incoherent movies i've seen in a while but <laughs> i can't fault the um the effects in that one have you seen that one sam no i have not i'm aware yeah, of it if though. you're yeah if you're into like practical effects or just you know effects in general and horror movies that one's like an amazing watch at least just on that front um but yeah we've watched so many movies this month i think um as i said we'd be rattling on for a while if we kept going but how about yourself what have you watched recently uh, that's a pretty impressive uh, watch list that you've got through this month. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've watched some films this month, not as many as what you guys have. But um, going, moving on from sort of like the come and see uh, discussion we just briefly had, um, running along sort of like the Nazis, white white supremacist type theme, I managed to watch um, Green Room by Jeremy Solnier. Oh, wonderful. Um, which... Um, was absolutely fantastic it blew me away yeah. um i from about the 10 minute mark my heart was pounding constantly until the end like the end scene <laughs> it was very much a roller coaster ride that film and it was yeah it's just very well crafted for sort of like a one location um sort of genre film um and yeah i was very impressed with that um yeah I i'm assuming you guys have seen both seen that yeah, and we actually recently watched uh, Blue Ruin, which is by the same director, and same, not as good as Green Room, but definitely same vibe where the entire <laughs> runtime of the film, you're like sick with anxiety <laughs> of like, what's this character going to do next? What's going to happen to him? And yeah, it's a, it's a roller coaster. It's great. <laughs> Excellent. I also watched the Arrow release of um, Robocop. 
nice. which is Good something job. I haven't seen since I was probably about 10 years old, which I probably shouldn't have been watching when I was 10 years old. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> my love for film was uh, deep even when I was a child. Yeah. I think we're all guilty of watching things a little bit <laughs> a bit too early. I know the one for me was watching the Child's Play movies when I was about eight. Yeah, mine <laughs> yeah. was from dusk till dawn at oh, six yeah. years old. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, um, obviously, when I was when I watched it as a kid, I didn't pick up on all the uh, sort of like the satire that was that's in the film and stuff. But, um, yeah, the transfer that Arrow did on that release was fantastic. And the special features particularly are extremely like in depth and uh i love watching like supplement materials to just like get all those bits of trivia and like further appreciate the the craft that goes into these things so um lastly, yeah so the last thing i watched um actually yesterday no two days ago was uh arrow videos first 4k release which was mm -hmm. their their output of pitch black by oh, david nice. Toohey. yeah so in the I don't know if it's just a UK specific, but um, yeah, Arrow Arrow Films, uh, yeah, branching out into the 4K media market, and they uh, did a restoration of yeah of Pitch Black, the 2000 uh, sci-fi sort of horror film starring Vin Diesel. So I thought I'd uh, pick that up, and it was uh, the, the actual transfer itself and the way the film looks is impeccable uh, to my eyes, at least. Um, I'm really excited to see what Arrow do in the future regarding their 4K titles. They do have uh, a film coming out on their um, sort of Arrow Academy line with uh, Cinema Paradiso in November. But yeah, just in terms of genre film, I'm really intrigued to see what they bring out and whether they bring out some of the previous titles in their catalogue um, like as a 4K release. Um, yeah, I'm very curious about that as well. It's really cool that they did pitch black i haven't seen that movie in so many years but i'd, mm. I'd love to check it out especially with arrow's new edition and like you said i mean cinema Parad cinema paradiso is also fantastic and i'm glad that's getting a 4k release um it's and you know you mentioned with john like you know getting genre films having the 4k treatment e even the film we mentioned before taming the t-rex i believe vinegar syndrome actually did a 4k release of that one which i feel like you know people who knew about that movie before vinegar syndrome announced their release of it I, I reckon i don't think any of them would have ever thought that that kind of movie would get the 4k treatment which i think is a fantastic thing obviously percent. Yeah, cool and that's basically my my watches this month of note anyway so let's uh jump into talking about the first film um as usual with the show on the past couple of episodes we like to discuss the film that came out first in terms of production so we'll be discussing David Cronenberg's 1983 masterpiece, that is Videodrome, starring James Woods and, and Debbie Harry. So uh, for any of you listeners out there, uh, the podcast starts off with spoilers from the outset. A lot of the films that we'll be discussing on the show will be films that have been out for quite a while. And so uh, if you haven't seen Videodrome by now, um, tough. <laughs> 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 so, so yeah, deal with it, guys. Right, so tagline for Videodrome. Uh, first, it controls your mind, then it destroys your body. And we just like to give like a letterbox description just to refresh anybody's memory of what the, the, the plot of the film is. They haven't seen it in a while. So as the president of a trashy TV channel, Max Wren is desperate for a new programming to attract viewers. 
when he happens upon Videodrome, a TV show dedicated to gratuitous torture and punishment, Max sees a potential hit and broadcasts the show on his channel. However, after his girlfriend auditions for the show and never returns, Max investigates the truth behind Videodrome and discovers that the graphic violence may not be as fake as he thought. So, amateur filmies, when did you first watch Videodrome and what did you think? So I'm really excited to talk about Videodrome because it's absolutely one of my favourite body horror films of all time. I think... I don't even know when I watched it for the first time. I think it probably would have been about five or six years ago because I really, I've always liked David Cronenberg's film The Fly and that sort of put me onto a journey of his other films where I, you know, eventually watched Videodrome, uh, Naked Lunch, um, and then Existence and a whole bunch of his other films. But Videodrome, for me, just hits all the right things. I don't know, there's something about that film that I absolutely love and I've since watched it a whole bunch of times and I was lucky enough to get Arrow's, Arrow's beautiful limited edition box set of it and it was one of those releases where I'm like I don't mind forking out the extra money because I love the film that much so to be able to have that edition in my collection it's a it's a hit my wallet's willing to take but um it's interesting to hear when Sarah first watched it when did you first watch it Sarah? I um I watched it yesterday for the first time ah because, uh, <laughs> yeah because <laughs> I'm not super into the body horror stuff and mm -hmm. obviously but I knew it was amazing, so yeah, obviously needed to check it out. And actually, watching Existence, actually, or however you say it, really got me into the body horror, like with David Cronenberg as well. That makes yeah. sense. Awesome. So the first time I saw it was when Arrow released it. Uh, I think it came out mm -hmm. in 2015, their release of it. So yeah, the first time I saw it is like five five years ago or so, and I haven't seen it since then. Um, but I as soon as the first time i watched it it instantly went into one of my favorite genre films um ever and i always look at it on the shelf and go oh i should really watch videodrome again it's such a great film but then there's so many other films that i have to watch and get through so i always <laughs> put it off but this was a perfect excuse to sort of dust it off the shelf and put it in to watch and just like sort of look at it a bit clo more closely for the show uh, so yeah, you briefly touched on it, Matt, but um, how are you familiar, are you guys, with uh, Cronenberg's other work? Personally, I'm I'm personally very familiar with it. Um, mm. I, I've, I've always loved David Cronenberg's films. Um, you know, as I said, I first watched The Fly uh, probably a long time ago now. I think I would have seen that for the first time when I was maybe 13 or 14. <laughs> and then, yeah, not long after that, as you know, as I said, I um, checked out Videodrome and went down the spiral. I recently... Well, I say recently, probably like the start of this year, I checked out Naked Lunch for the first time. And I don't know if you've seen that one, but I absolutely loved that one. It was such a trip of a movie. I really, I really loved his approach to sort of using visuals to be able to tell a really unique story. And yeah, Naked Lunch was just, it's such a fun movie to try and like deconstruct and try and figure out what was his intention. And I still don't even know if I have a full grasp of what he was trying to communicate, but it's even just the process of coming up with your own theories has been, it's always a fun thing with Cronenberg. And um, recently as well, I also watched The Brood, which I thought was really great. Not my favorite from him, but there are a lot of elements to that movie that I really, really loved. Um, movies that I, I'm trying to think of ones of his that I haven't seen. I think... Rabid? Rabid, I'm still yet to see. We've had yeah, that edition for I'm such not, a long time. but yeah, I've not seen that either. Yeah, it's some of his earlier works, um, I mean, a couple of them. Rabid's one of the ones that we haven't seen. And um, I think maybe some of his newer works. I think we, the newest one we watched was Eastern Promises. I'm not 100% sure, yeah. though, what he's done after that. That was a lot more mainstream, wasn't it? I felt so. It felt that way, yeah. I but mean, definitely not body horror. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, no, not quite. Yeah, he's made some sort of like crime films. Um, 
So he also made History of Violence. Yes, I, oh. I love the History of Violence. Yeah, so it's very different. Like you, you go the fly, um, sort of existence and Videodrome, and then you go to Eastern Promises and History of Violence, and they're, they're quite quite different types of films. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I'm just trying to even just thinking off the top of my head of what other films he's done, but like, yeah, I've I've pretty much to some scanners. degree loved every scanners. Yep, of that's course. a yeah. Of course, I love I think... everyone references the the head explosion scene, which is always great. <laughs> yeah. And I just remembered as well, he also did the Dead Zone. Yeah, I was about to say that's like the bridging. That's like a bridge movie for me. Like yeah. from that '80s horror into that crime, if that makes sense. Like it. Yeah, sure. It's it's slowly getting into that more mainstream yeah for yeah. sure i can see that yeah I, don't know. <laughs> I and you know being a big fan of stephen king i think you know if you're familiar with stephen king movie adaptations you definitely know that they can be hit or miss mm -hmm. and i for me i really liked the dead zone and i think it was one of the better adaptations of his works in particular christopher walken was really good back and i think it was martin sheen who actually plays the president i could be remembering yeah. wrong but i distinctly remember um that performance being really uh memorable as well but yeah, for me, David Cronenberg has been a sort of fixture in my home movie watching experience. I've always <laughs> loved his stuff. Um, what about you, Sarah? Have you seen a couple? Yeah, I've seen a few. Um, I watched The Fly when I was a teenager and like Jeff Goldblum, like it was just disgusting <laughs> and it was really disturbing and I, I hated it when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, but upon rewatching it as an adult, you get a, you know, deeper appreciation, things don't freak you out as much. But I actually, whenever I think of David Cronenberg, I think of his... Uh, appearance in Nightbreed mm -hmm. and how <laughs> I think he plays a, yeah, plays well, a killer in that we don't, or something. Well, yeah, I don't know if we, I don't know what to spoil too much of Nightbreed, but um, have you seen Nightbreed, <laughs> exactly. Sam? Oh yeah, sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it was really sort of interesting to see him in that role. Mm -hmm. wasn't say. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it, it's such a comical role. I don't know. He, he's a lot like, he's a pretty strong actor, mm -hmm. but definitely, uh, better known for his direct you know directorial pursuits <laughs> of course <laughs> and there's one of his films that i'm very desperate to see but i don't at least in the uk or in europe there isn't like a decent blu-ray release of it and that's crash yes oh, yes i'm very very much wanting to see that i'm hoping that arrow will pick that up at some point or one of the boutique blu-ray labels will do like a restoration and give the treatment it looks like it deserves because some people who i've spoken to they regard crash as one of his best films like up there mm. with videodrome and things like that but yeah i'm just i'm just holding off i don't want to buy like i'm not a snob but i don't want to buy like a dvd <laughs> version of it or anything like that yeah i want to see, exactly see it in like i want to see it in the best possible way I, I can wait for it i'm not like dying to see it although i'm very intrigued too um but yeah Absolutely. crash crashes the other the other film by cronenberg one of these big ones not... that i haven't seen just wanted to quickly mention as well i don't know if like you mentioned arrow on purpose but have you heard the recent news in the past couple of days regarding uh crash no so i'm if i'm remembering correctly i was on reddit looking on the boutique blu-ray subreddit uh in the recent alejandro jodorowsky i don't even know how to say his name properly but yeah that new box set that's coming out they found a postcard for crash inside that oh that's that's made my day that's amazing yeah i hope i'm remembering correctly i don't want to <laughs> tell it say that and then you go look it up and i was wrong but i'm like 90 percent sure oh that is that excellent a news. crash card was found yeah that, that's sweet there's been some really interesting cards in some of the releases recently there's been a mm -hmm. card for um, like Inglorious Bastards by yes. uh, Tarantino. Ooh, There's been uh, Wolf of Wall Street. 
Yes, I saw that my, one too. Yeah, um, there's a film which I'm really hoping they release at some point, which is um, Richard Kelly's uh, The Southland Tales. Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I haven't... I remember watching that movie once, like a long time ago. Yeah. Like I honestly cannot remember it, but I've heard like it has that movie has quite a few fans. Does that have yeah, Sarah it, Michelle Gellar in it? It does, and it has like uh, the Rock in it, and um, <laughs> it is um, the film is a mess. Like the film is, <laughs> but it's one of the most entertaining messes I've ever seen. Like there are absolute, yeah. there are moments of genius mixed in with <laughs> dire filmmaking it's such a weird concoction of like styles and it's just it's just so strange like because it was the thing it's the film that he uh, richard kelly made after donnie darko all oh, right okay yeah I didn't realize, yeah i didn't make that connection yeah so he it, he made it after donnie darko which was like quite a big sleeper hit like it um it was well received and it's obviously got a huge cult following now um but it like made loads of money on like the dvd market when it was released and then um but uh, he there's um a director's cut that arrow put out in their box set it's like their special edition box set of that and the director's cut yeah. is a, a far inferior version of the film than the theatrical cut i agree <laughs> so it's one of <laughs> it's one of the um it's one of the instances where like um studios interfering with like films has made the film significantly better. I Although think, uh, the director's cut did help me understand the movie more. Oh, I don't like. I didn't I like. I would have been lost without it. Without I, it. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like the explanation stuff. I liked uh, as what Matt's reference to. Um, I can't remember what film you were mentioning. A uh, Naked Lunch. You like to piece together what you you make of it. Um, mm -hmm. I, so, I'm with you, Sam. I, I think <laughs> you and I are both disagreeing with Sarah on this one. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. Fair That's all right. Um, but that but, that Arrow video box of Donnie Darko is gorgeous. Though. Oh, it's fantastic! I actually met Richard Kelly at the uh, British Film Institute when he was oh, doing. Wow. Uh, oh, that's yeah, awesome. he was doing a, um, a like a, a restoration sort of um, Q and A screening, and so I managed to pick up tickets. So he was there before and after the the showing. That's the first time I saw the director's cut, <laughs> and I didn't Did know what to expect to go in. I, I didn't know. I didn't have the heart. <laughs> Um, but he was he's a really interesting guy i managed to get my actual copy of the film signed by him as well so that's quite special yeah, um, yeah but um yeah so I, I doubt i'll ever watch the director's cut again but i'm I'm a big fan of the theatrical cut is one of the films in my child well i guess i wasn't really too much of a child but in my, my teenage years that really sort of cemented my love for film um yeah so really like that oh, we've gone off on a tangent what was we on about <laughs> I imagine we'll be doing that a few times. It's in our nature to deviate as much as oh, possible. Oh yeah, so. we was on about sorry, so we was on about Arrow releases, and then we was on about yes. what cards have been put in Arrow releases for films that are potentially going to be coming out in the future. So oh, and, said, and it circles yeah. back to Crash. That's right. Yeah, and it circles back to Crash because you said in the Alejandro Jodorowsky set that there's going to be there's potentially a Crash card in there for a future release, which is very exciting for me. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I've got that set coming out. It, oh, it comes out in eight days. Yeah, I've got it pre-ordered pre on. Yeah. So I'm really excited to, to, for that one to come through. It looks like a, a beast of a set. So he's he's one of those directors. Like again, I say this for a lot of things, but he's one of those directors I've I've known about for a long time. Just have never actually given his films a go. That I feel like that's why I like box sets like this one. If you if you're willing to you know fork out the money for the set. 
it's a good like I'm, it's a good entry into that sort of you know his his films you know it's got El Topo in there it's got the Holy Mountain I also we have an order from Severin hopefully coming soon we got uh, Santa Sangre I think I'm pronouncing that right yeah. but there's yeah it's I really really like director themed box sets sometimes obviously they you know just by nature of the publishing rights or whatever it, like licensing stuff sometimes films get omitted but in general like I really like when you get a director themed box set the most recent one that we got was the Shinya Sukamoto box set are you familiar with that set I am familiar with it, but um, it costs too much for me to import that one. But yeah. I have pretty much all of his films that were released through um, Third Window Films. Yes, yep. And yep. Uh, yeah, um, I could talk about him uh, all day long, um, <laughs> but we won't for the purposes of keeping the podcast as short as possible. <laughs> but <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, his his filmography of the ones I've seen, I think I've seen three of his films, but I think I have all of them. Uh, in third windows that have come out and uh, he is yeah a very interesting filmmaker that um, i want to explore more of his work um but yeah um i may touch upon um one of his films later on in the discussion so stay tuned for that oh, interesting yeah so um yeah let's just jump into some some stuff talking to, about videodrome shall we um, sounds good so um yeah where should we start <laughs> um it's a, it's a tough one to sort it of it is <laughs> yeah I, maybe we should going. start I, I don't know how familiar either of you two are but about the conception of the film and where cronenberg got the idea i know i'd love to hear some for the film that, yeah, yeah so um he conceived of the film based on his sort of experiences by watching sort of late night toronto tv um so the the civic um tv channel that's in the film that max wren sort of like the ceo or president of i'm not quite sure what his actual job title is but um is based on a toronto tv channel called um city tv that ran during the 70s and uh, this was sort of like broadcasting stuff like after midnight one two three o'clock in the morning and it would show mm -hmm. sort of softcore pornography and mm -hmm. um uh, a show called the naked news <laughs> in which um, right. <laughs> sort of like models uh, would sort of strip during uh announcing sort of news items from the day so at the at the beginning <laughs> at the beginning of an of a, of a of a bit they'd be completely clothed and at the end they'd be naked and so this <laughs> this was extremely popular in the 70s um and sort of david cronenberg was uh, sort of thinking well, what would happen if late at night you sort of tuned into a broadcast of something you weren't supposed to see and so that oh, was yeah. sort of like the basis of where he got the idea from of a videodrome. That's really interesting history, actually. And, you know, I can, knowing that, you know, knowing what you've just told us, I can definitely see how that's been adapted into the, the final product of videodrome. Yeah. Like as um, far, you know, as far as like watching, you know, tuning into something that you're not supposed to see. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, one of the first scenes in the film that basically lays down the foundation of what this film is trying to say is the talk show scene where um, Max and uh, Max Wren, Nikki Brand, and then through a TV screen on TV, Brian Oblivion um, are sort of like being questioned about uh, the nature of the content that they're showing on television and how it may or may not be affecting people. And I thought it was just a really great way of just laying all the cards out on the table and saying to the viewers, this is what the film is about like bringing into question the how violence and like extreme 
sex and things like that uh, affect um, affect people and just general civilization. Now, what did you think of it? Yeah, no, I, I really liked that scene. Um, it's, yeah, as you said, it sort of sets the film up nicely, sort of gives you a hint as far as like, you know, what sort of themes are going to be covering, what sort of messages they're going to be, you know, talking about or, you know, trying to get across. And I think it was a really good sort of, I even know if you'd call it like an exposition scene, but in a way, I guess it was like, I, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree. I think it was a really, um, it's one of the scenes I remember the most, actually, I think, um, funnily enough, given all the stuff that comes later, but yeah, I, I really liked that sort of setup and, you know, the idea of, you know, um, Oblivion conducting the interview through the TV. I don't know, it just was one of the first things that I remember most about that movie. Yeah, and it's just watching that in 2020, sort of, uh, how old, what, how old is that many now? So that's 37 years later. This film's mm. 37 years old. That's crazy. Um, that's crazy. It's, it's so sort of, a really prophetic way of sort of predicting the future of how media and television and what people consume is affects people as particularly in the modern age where we've all got mobile phones and there's social media and people just need information sort of like instantly you know instant gratification of get getting information and things to them like now and just the 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 increase in how violent films are compared to how they used to be sort of thing how like censorship is like re being reduced but then also the dangers of how that may affect people on a psychological level um so yeah it's all this so this this film is like a rabbit hole of philosophical questions <laughs> about uh the nature of um graphic content and how it can affect your psyche and things like that so yeah this is a it's going to be an interesting conversation yeah absolutely and i think it's really interesting how the interview itself brings and brings upon that moral question of whether depicting the, that violence is encouraging it or satiating like the viewer exactly and... yeah because he says max ren sorry to interrupt Rax, max no, no, says <laughs> max says um it's better to be on tv than on the streets Yes, that's uh, so, right. To, to paraphrase, I don't. I, yeah, it's re it is really interesting. But then I'm, uh, my thoughts would be like, do sort of art mimics life, and like life mimics art. It's like the constant cycle, isn't it? So it, exactly, like, you'd be thinking, well, does if if you're depicting violence and stuff on screen, uh, does that then encourage people or sort of make people become more violent? Or is what we've shown on screen just a reflection of society, or is it a bit of both? You know, it's a very, yeah, um, it's a very <laughs> difficult point of discussion. It's, yeah, it's a very difficult question to tackle, um, and I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's a bit of both, really. I think mm. it, it was so many different factors that can determine things, but like I've grown up pretty much since I was a very young child watching things that I shouldn't have done, and as far as I'm aware, <laughs> like. I don't think I've really been affected psychologically by these things. So you might, so need to get a, might need to get a brain scan there, see if that tune has <laughs> started to grow on. <laughs> yeah. For those listening, if you haven't watched the movie, that is a reference. I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah. There's a part of the, obviously, I know we've talked about the fact that we'll spoil a couple of things, but one of the ideas in Videodrome is that when you're exposed to the Videodrome signal, you do grow a tumor on your brain that sort of affects your, you know, your perception of reality and causes hallucinations. And 
Yeah, I was just referencing that. I didn't, in case people thought I was offending, offending you. <laughs> it does come from a place in reality, though, because people, I think, to this day, still believe that, like you know, that CRT and all those, like those signals, can trigger a brain tumor or like the development of one. I'm not a scientist. Yeah. I don't <laughs> you were saying before how like there was, there like was that belief perception. back then. Yeah, you, you're saying before there was a belief back then that people who watched you know those particular types of TVs like back in the 70s or 80s or whatever that it could lead to that isn't that right Sarah? yeah i mean absolutely like i don't know the exact science <laughs> of it but yeah that was the common perception of the day mm, i thought that was interesting and i just remembered as well as we we're talking about the 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 sec the scene in the movie you're talking about the the news segment where they're all on the couch and talking to brian oblivion on the tv it reminded me of a interview that uh, a famous interview that quentin tarantino had with a um a news presenter yeah. when Kill Bill was being released. And yeah, I've seen this on YouTube, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. And yeah, having a similar sort of conversation about, like, the nature of violence on screen and whether or not this is actually affecting, you know, the viewer. And, you know, I think I think Quentin Tarantino did a pretty good job of defending himself. And, you know, again, I think it is the type of thing that warrants a discussion, but I do lean towards the side of it not really... I don't know. It's yeah. It's kind of tough to talk. Like I don't know. It's really hard to sort of come up with a clear cut conclusion. I'm obviously on the. I, I personally am on the side of, you know, it's entertainment. It's it's just movies. You're like I think you should be able to push boundaries and stuff like that. But the idea that violence and you know, just heightened stuff. I don't know even how to say it. But like that sort of stuff in general. Um, I think it is worth a discussion about whether or not this actually impacts. You know, a viewer, especially, you know, one of the common things, in, at least in that interview and in general discussions, is that, you know, if kids are exposed to this early on, what, what would this cause any future damage or future anything like that? And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't I don't know the science or the, you know, the social studies that have been, you know, put into this. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. That's for sure. So another uh, really interesting sort of segment in the film that um, I really enjoyed was the cathode ray mission. Uh, sort of yes uh, i just uh, adore that concept it is so interesting so i think it's meant to be modeled on like a, a catholic like sort of style refuge center or something like that but it's basically for homeless people to get their tv fixes because you know the the modern way of life depicted in the videodrome is that you you can't function without um sort of being have you being glued to a tv screen to get like some sort of fix or whatever it's almost saying that um tv is a drug and again that is is just so relevant today with mobile phones and people just being glued to them all the time um i'm i'm guilty of it myself just like <laughs> sitting there scrolling through my phone needlessly and sometimes i, I get wrong, up, yeah. <laughs> yeah i sometimes get a little like agitated with myself because i'm like i'm doing this for no reason i could be doing something else a lot more constructive with my time but for some reason i just need to pick it up and just move my thumb up the screen to see what's going on <laughs> in the world and it, it's just so but it's it you can it's not as extreme as like having to go to a refuge center to sit in front of a television to like make myself feel better yeah. but it's that sort of like similar clinic almost yeah it's very similar thing to like saying you go to work or you go on a day out somewhere and say you leave your phone at home you sort of like feel amiss without it it's uh it's very strange way that like modern life has turned into that we rely so much on technology and like when we don't have our phones or a way of connecting on social media that we we feel less 
like we're part of of the world in a way it's just mm. a very interesting um thing to think about but yeah that cathode ray mission scene um is where max meets uh bianca oblivion the daughter of um brian oblivion and she has this fantastic line probably my favorite line in the film uh, which i'll paraphrase but basically she says um that people believe that public life on television is more real than private life in the flesh and that's mm. just a yeah. great great way of summarizing sort of modern life for a lot of people in 2020 sort of a lot of people living out their lives on like instagram and youtube sort of like blogging their lives but um and if you're not like in in the public eye then what are you really doing are you really existing it's sort of like if you don't post that you ate this meal last night did it happen you know <laughs> do you know what i mean it's simple things Absolutely, like that like yeah. or if you don't if you don't post pictures of you going on holiday did you even go on holiday um yeah but that yeah that 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 line that uh bianca oblivion has is yeah my favorite from the film probably and it just yeah really this film is just stands up so well not not just the special effects which is just absolutely amazing by rick baker but mm -hmm. the 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 themes and what the film is trying to say is just is better now is like more relevant now than what it was when it came out like because in 1983 there wasn't and there was no concept of social media and having technology in that could fit in your pocket where you could connect to the world and things like that so yeah this is extremely sort of really well at predicting the future and and being Absolutely. on point on being on point today and i think that's like one of the things i, I adore about this movie it, you know, it's a as you said it came out in 1983 and it, you know it feels very experimental in a lot of ways but it's just it's absolutely awesome like how as you as you already said like how relevant it is today like you can you can watch it and the themes and the ideas that they're trying to explore in that movie still hold up in even in you know newer contemporary contexts which i think is like one of the best things about the movie and like to sort of go on about before about how you know like in today's age where you know your example of you know did you go on holiday if you didn't post pictures of it or you know if you you know posting pictures of your phone like living and that quote where uh what was the quote again the paraphrase was the, the oh, pe people pe yeah people believe that public life on television is more real than private life in the flesh that's right yeah and like you know what you see on tv or on you know on youtube or whatever whatever source you're looking at that's always going to be the the best you know usually it's the best representation that person the person who uploaded that's what they want you to see that's usually highly yeah. edited it's the they're communicating the image yeah they're, they're communicating the image that they want to project so if you're always basing your own happiness and experience of what you see on online you're always going to be disappointed because your reality is never going to ma match the sort of highly polished you know sort of thing that's being communicated online if that makes sense yeah for sure so uh, um, are there any uh, scenes in the film or uh, particular points that um grab you as like being your favorite amongst the amongst the the film i'll let sarah go first on this one i'm gonna have to give this a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a think because it's still you know very fresh in my mind but i don't know i probably have to say the the, the same thing uh same scene with the cathode ray mission where he demands to see brian oblivion and she said and the daughter says, oh, you know, you're going to be disappointed. And I mm -hmm. thought, okay, I think I know what's happening here. And then, you know, she opens the door and it's just a collection of videotapes. And I thought, how fitting 
I immediately thought of Black Mirror and how Videodrome walked so Black Mirror could run, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, how he sort of uploaded his consciousness to video and, you know, that that concept has been replayed in Black Mirror episodes and it's very powerful because, you know, he also believed that his presence was stronger on television than it was in real life, Mm -hmm. which is... um, it's very sad, and it's, it was very poetic, though. Yeah, uh, I think... Um, oh, sorry, Sam, go ahead. I was going to say, um, just moving on to a, another scene that I think uh, is, is great, and another example of Rick Baker's um, genius is the scene with the... the um, it's quite an iconic image from the film where the TV is sort of, like, pulsating and breathing, and Max Wren sort of... <laughs> puts his head into the into the screen and sort of oh, i don't know what's going on in that scene but um it's sort of, it's so strange because like the, the 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 top of the tv has like veins in it and yeah. it's basically it's meant to be i guess sort of like symbolizing how people are sort of becoming more connected with technology and that technology is yeah. basically part of of like being a human now like you can't function in modern day society and like in the western world particularly without without technology you need you need a tv you need a mobile phone you need a computer you need all these things so that you can like live your day-to-day life um but yeah the the yeah that scene is particularly fantastic visually and the, the work that must have gone into that to make a tv pulsate is just yeah absolutely incredible i think um Rick Baker and his crew managed to fit it with like hydraulics and stuff. And uh, there was supposed to be a scene uh, that was never filmed, but it was in the script, I believe, where Max was um, sort of like taking a bath and he sort of starts um, hallucinating as he does throughout the film. And when it's very sort of similar to um, Nightmare on Elm Street, where Freddy's hand comes out of the bath when one of the girls is like laying down and relaxing in the bathtub um mm-hmm. but instead of freddie's hand coming up in between like her legs it's the tv comes out of the bottom yeah. of the bathtub and they <laughs> I, had I real, actually read of it that's yeah it. they they had trouble trying to uh, manage to get an an electrical because the tv is like real um yeah. trying <laughs> yeah. to get it so it wouldn't electrocute anybody so they had to cover it with all this um like uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was something that wouldn't wet like all the circuit boards and stuff. Um, yeah. And then they they dis- they discussed getting like non-conductive fluid to fill the bathtub with, but it was like super expensive. It was like twenty five dollars for like a pint of it or something like that. So they couldn't exactly <laughs> fill a bathtub with this stuff because it would have blown all the budget out of the water. Um, I can imagine, yeah. But uh, if that would have ever had been filmed, that would have been a really like interesting sequence to see on screen. Um, but unfortunately, they. Um, due to budgetary reasons and just figuring out the exact makings of the contraption and executing the scene well it just didn't work out unfortunately but um yeah it's always interesting um to think about what could have been (laughs) with things like that absolutely yeah and you know i know you uh, funny you mentioned the tv scene because as far as like the scenes that i remember the most vividly that was going to be the one i was going to go to that one for sure is like i remember even when we were watching the movie i couldn't help myself i was like the scenes coming up here like <laughs> i was like i can't wait like for you to see this it's just such a unique way of sort of 
like you know, I, I I love films that sort of delve into a character's hallucinations because once you sort of establish that that's what's happening, you could you really have free reign to sort of do whatever you want on the screen, and it's sort of you know props to Rick Baker and his team for being able to sort of show that in a really unique and you know scary creepy way and e even the videotape was like you know when it was pulsating and like all fleshy it, all fleshy and it <laughs> looked like it was sort of you know um expanding you know as though it was breathing i thought that was awesome and you know as far as like scenes being super memorable given you know how much i love horror my scene my you know my memories do gravitate towards the more sort of you know hardcore scenes like the you know as in the more memorable scenes like the tv but, th but also the scene that comes a bit later when um Max has been programmed to, you know, receive signals from the video drum thing and he gets the, um, what's his name? Barry convex or something like that. And yeah. he puts the, the tape inside of Max in his thumb, in his stomach. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw that, that it just blew my mind. It was just like the most freakiest, like grossest thing I'd seen for a while. And you know, that sort of, and I'm sort of jumping around the film a bit, but then, you know, he, the, the gun ends up inside his stomach and mm -hmm. when he pulls it out, it's like an extension of his body. Yeah, it fuses all the, to his hand. It fuses to his yeah, hand. That, like that the scene is fan yeah, that's fantastic. It sort of fuses itself to his arm. It's very, yeah. you can, you can tell it's not a real hand, but you don't care because the craft that has gone into making this is just exactly. so great. Like it's just moving in, in and out of his palm and then like connects into his forearm and, uh, yeah, it's really it's, freaky. It is. It is. It's and like, um. You know, one of the things I've read as well is that like some people, and I can understand why this, why people would think this, but like a lot of people think that you should watch Videodrome on like an old beat up VHS tape to sort of, mm -hmm. you know, obviously it'd be a lot more grainy and it have sort of drive home that sort of home, that home video experience. But like, I, I even though I, I love Arrow's like restoration and, you know, sometimes the restoration can lead to some effects being a bit more obvious as far as like how, you know, how obviously not why wires and things like that <laughs> yeah exactly um but you know still like even though you can obviously tell it's not a, you know a real hand and you can tell it's a very obvious uh you know prop or whatever mm -hmm. it, it's still it just is so memorable and freaky i just i love it regardless uh so um i just wanted to mention probably what my favorite scene from the film is and that's probably rick baker's greatest uh example of his um his talents is where max shoots uh, barry convex at the sort of the the gala oh, yeah. or whatever it is yep. and yep. I, I, I as i said i saw this first for like five years ago and for some reason maybe because my mom wanted to blank it out i forgot that this scene occurs and so when he shoots him <laughs> and then he basically has his sort of like the thing moment where his like yeah. body yeah. just opens up <laughs> and it is disgusting but like absolutely awesome at the same time like absolutely. it's it's just a great example of um like practical effects and uh yeah that's probably my favorite scene from the film and uh yeah i really enjoyed that i just wanted to mention it <laughs> yeah i thought that was absolutely disgusting and the way his his tongue is like yeah convulsing it was sickening and but i was also confused because i was like why why is he doing that why you know and Matt's like, oh, you know, you've got to remember that this movie, that James Wood's character is, is hallucinating. And then this yeah. is like a metaphor. And I was like, okay, right. Like it's <laughs> from that point on, like, you know, after, you know, he's been fully immersed in, inside of the, he's been fully immersed with the Videodrome signal. Like we just sort of have to accept that from a certain point onwards in the movie that we're experiencing his reality now, which is, you know, completely, uh, has been altered, like, you know, through 
you know, he's hallucinating, it's been altered by the signal, so things like that, you just sort of just have to accept that that's the new, <laughs> that's <laughs> the new truth moving forward, you know. And again, that's part of the reason why I love films that uh, have characters that are hallucinating or you're experiencing an alternate reality of some sort, because it really can make things a lot more creative and interesting for the, as an audience member. And yeah, it's just absolutely brilliant. I, that scene where he, where he's sort of convulsing is just like, it's so freaky and well done. I just, I love like body gore like that. I just, it's such a, such a great scene. And I remember the first with the, the, um, I can't remember his name. Is it Harlan? The, that's yeah, right. Yeah. The guy with the glasses. Yeah. Yeah. He, he keeps um, saying Protron. <laughs> yeah, Patrick, yeah, that's right. I'm so bad at remembering character names. I I know I know who they are in my head, but remembering their names is another thing. But I remember Sarah got like a look of confusion on her face when he essentially like blew up out in, into yeah. thin air. But how yeah. the hell did that happen? Yeah, but like it's, as I said, like you after can't take everything point, at just, face value. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we know that. Uh, we know that Max Ren is you know he's hallucinating. He's experienced a different type of reality, and that's we're seeing it through his eyes. So it's. Again, such a great way to watch a movie when you're able to, you know, a director is able to sort of delve into that type of thing. So, yeah, absolutely fantastic imagery in those two scenes. So I just wanted to mention um, another thing I really enjoy about the film, and that is uh, the score music that runs throughout this by Howard Shaw. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't realize until doing a little bit of research for the podcast as how many great films Howard Shaw has composed for. Are you aware of some of the work that he's No, I'm he's not actually. On? Yeah, we'd love to yeah hear. so I really the, yeah, the 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 music that he's made for this film just like is fantastic. It really adds to the eerie atmosphere and sort of yeah, contributes to not that it needs to, the visuals and the content themselves are like unsettling and creepy enough. But um yeah, it just really adds to that the whole vibe in the film. And mm. yeah, so uh, Shaw has um apart from one of Cronenberg's films, he's he's he he's done all of Cronenberg's films. The music for oh wow, so that's okay. yeah. I feel like I should know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was like first thing I saw was that it was like oh, Cronenberg's made quite a lot of films, um, and yeah. So Shaw's uh, he's composed for all of them apart from one. I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, um, he's done all those. Um, he's also worked with Scorsese. He scored The Departed oh, wow. and Gangs of New York. He's worked with David Fincher. He scored Seven. Um, Jeez, he's a legend, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he. Um, I sh I, I, I'm ashamed with finding this out because, like, on the yeah, like, I feel like I, we should like. Yeah, I should know this. Like, uh, as being like a self-described uh, cinephile, I'd like to think I know quite a lot about films. At least, like, touch something on every genre and know, mm. you know, uh, know a bit about films. Like, yeah. But um, his big, the biggest films he's done. Uh, he, he scored the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh what really? Yep. Kidding. <laughs> nope. It's Sorry. embarrassing we didn't. Yeah, know he won. That. He yeah, won. Feel... He won an Oscar, obviously, for the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I'd hate to like imagine what this guy's like pay rate is. Like, if you want to have him on your film, I feel like he could charge like six billion dollars. Yeah, he's had like a pretty good resume, hasn't he? Yeah, and then uh, just a little tidbit. He also um, wrote the theme song for the original Saturday Night Live theme so <laughs> far out man so yeah you can't do exactly. no so um just based on that that research that i did um yeah uh 
Howard Shaw is one of my favourite um, <laughs> composers in film. I think he might be one of my favourite <laughs> ones I, and didn't even uh, know it. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, and there's more that I haven't even written down. That like, I was just like, I'm just scrolling through like his Wikipedia page of all the films that he's composed for. I'm like, my God, this guy has done so <laughs> much. Like up there with like John Williams, sort of like, he's done that film. He's done yeah. that film. And yeah, I'm ashamed to say that um, I didn't know his name before looking into this. So oh, yeah, don't worry, really I mean, sad, we're yeah. the same. <laughs> this is all new information to us. <laughs> I guess we all have gaps in our film knowledge. So yeah, that exactly. one has well and truly been plugged now. So there we go. <laughs> Far out. That's crazy. So um, is there any other points of discussion that you guys wanted to bring up about um, Videodrome? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've covered a lot. And I, as you know, we mentioned a few times, I just, it's such a fantastic movie that really does stand the test of time you know there are the general themes and like ideas that are explored in it it's it's really great to be able to discuss how they're still applicable even in more contemporary times and contexts and you know you know they wouldn't have even imagined back then i assume like you know the degree to which social media and you know all different technological advances would happen over the course of the next few decades but it's just such a I love that such an experimental like body horror masterpiece really can not only stand the test of time as just a you know an awesome 80s like genre flick but you know even beyond that you can like analyze it and just see how relevant it is in different ways it's just absolutely an awesome film i can't like i would honestly recommend it to pretty much anyone like it's definitely not i, I can see why someone might not like it it it's definitely you know it has a lot of um like it it definitely does play to the horror genre in a lot of ways for sure but like you know if you're willing to take a chance on you know on that i don't think you'd be disappointed because it to me it's up there as david cronenberg's possibly his best film that he's done in my opinion for sure um just sort of reiterating what you what you've been saying matt um it's one of those films that bridges the sort of prestige cinema uh, uh, I don't really like using words like that because we all like different things for different reasons. But for instance, Videodrome, I think, is one of the only films that is both in the Arrow Video Collection and in the Criterion Collection. And I yeah, think there's okay. a really, and that's the really interesting tell on what this film managed to manages to accomplish. It has so much social commentary and it's just expertly crafted and it, it appeals to so many different types of film uh um, like lovers um like anyone who's into horror and body horror will like it and then but people who may not that may not be their jam generally can watch this and get so much out of it from sort of like a political and a, a social commentary aspect about absolutely about about the society that we live in so i think videodrome is yeah it's one of the perfect examples of sort of genre film and sort of prestige cinema sort of meeting in the middle and just perfectly working as one yeah, preach it yeah i totally agree what preach, are you, are you glad you... <laughs> no no I, I mean it's it's such a sick movie i'm even in again i don't mean to keep shouting out our own youtube channel but like no, 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 our, please, um, please do. 10, yeah i was just gonna say even in our my my top 10 horror uh horror movies list videodrome does make a cheeky appearance there so it definitely is a movie that i highly recommend to anyone and i'm fine i'm really glad that sarah actually finally gave it a chance and watched it for this upcoming podcast so are you glad that you watched it sarah? oh absolutely <laughs> i'm glad to hear. it's a um not it's not often that like a body horror would reach would just be considered such a like a grand film mm, exactly in my opinion 
yeah and I'm thinking a lot of other people's opinions it's uh generally body horror films wouldn't have the also contain the social commentary aspect to it so it's yeah, uh it's, def it's definitely unique in that respect absolutely um yeah where would you guys uh i don't know how you feel about this matt um but where would you rank this in uh, cronenberg's work of uh body work no oh, for me i you know without overthinking it because coming up with like top 10 lists is very stressful for me or you know lists of any kind can be very stressful but mm -hmm. i think you know i think i am going to put this at number one i think it could change maybe to number two if i you know i need to rewatch naked lunch again i did love that film but i think on as a whole experience and just the whole viewing experience i think videodrome tops it out at number one for me closely followed by maybe naked lunch and the fly awesome how about you sarah oh i mean from my limited <laughs> yeah. viewing of david cronenberg i'd probably have to put this at probably just under the fly yeah but above dead ringers oh yeah, we've got to mention dead ringers yeah but that's another great film but yeah no i that's a i'm glad that you rank it that high sam i'm glad yeah that you actually did end up liking it it's definitely a lot better than his mainstream films but i feel like the fly personally is my magnum opus of his <laughs> yeah that's totally fair. i'm sure a lot of people share that opinion too what about yeah. you sam yeah i'm gonna i think we're all in pretty much consensus that this is uh one of his best films and um although on this podcast i don't like to have a pairing with a film by the same director but this film would be perfectly paired with another david cronenberg film that i really enjoy which is existence yeah yeah it's just <laughs> sure. a basic it's basically videodrome part two <laughs> yeah sort of like, yeah. But, but that's in like, a fair assessment in the yeah in the, it's in the video game era with like virtual reality and things like that and uh yeah it just echoes a lot of the same sort of um themes that were running um through videodrome but it's just uh it's not quite as it's not as good um but i do nah. enjoy existence and hopefully that will be something that will get an arrow release at some point it seems like it's something they'd um jump on the chance to release in the future for sure yeah, i don't I know, know if it's been released films. by another another boutique label but yeah i don't i don't know if they're considered a boutique label or not because i don't have any of their releases but i know that 101 films i think they're called i think they're a uk company they i'm pretty sure they had a, a release of existence on blu-ray but I don't know how readily available it is. We have a, I think now out of print Blu-ray. We didn't know it was out of print at the time that we got it, but <laughs> we got a really lucky find. But yeah, I think we can all agree that, you know, a company like Arrow or whoever else picking up, you know, the rights to that film, just it'd be great to see that film get the, you know, the restoration and the treatment and the supplements and whatnot. I'd, I'd love to get a really nice release of that one. Cool. So I guess that wraps up our uh, the first part of the podcast with our discussion of Videodrome. So we'll just uh, we'll just take a, a ten minute break, guys, and then we'll uh, be back to talk about uh, 1988's Lay Live, directed by John Carpenter. We're back in a minute, guys. Excellent. Wonderful. <laughs> Okay, so welcome back to the second part of this episode of the Let's Watch 2 podcast where we are discussing uh, the pairing of um, 
David Cronenberg's Videodrome with uh, John Carpenter's They Live. So, tagline for uh, They Live. Uh, you see them on the street. You watch them on TV. You might even vote for them for one this fall. You think they're people just like you. You're wrong. Dead wrong. Letterbox description. Nada. Or Nader. Is it Nada? Because he's not actually called anything in the film, is he? He doesn't actually have a name. Is that well, right? Yeah. Nada it translate to, translates to nothing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah Nada that's, does, I think. That's yeah. right. It's, is, that Spanish? is it Spanish? Is that Spanish? I think so. <laughs> yeah so but yeah and he he's an, he's got a name in the in the in the credits but in the film he's never actually called anything i believe but anyway nada a wanderer without meaning in his life discovers discovers a pair of sunglasses capable of showing the world the way it truly is as he walks the streets of los angeles nada notices that both the media and the government are comprised of subliminal messages meant to keep the population subdued and the most of the social elite are skull-faced aliens bent on world domination. With this shocking discovery, Nada fights to free humanity from the mind-controlling aliens. So, amateur filmies, when did you first watch They Live, and what did you think? Well, I again, I, I do struggle to remember when I've watched movies for the first time, just because I tend to watch too many. <laughs> but... um. I think for this one, it probably again probably in my early teenage years, and this rewatching it in anticipation of you know recording this podcast was actually the second time that I'd ever watched it. And funnily enough, the first I you know we'll get into why later, but the first time I watched it, I wasn't super keen on it actually, as far as you know how much I liked this film versus John Carpenter's other works. But I have to say, in rewatching it now, I actually liked it a, like a lot more than I originally did, which was a really nice, pleasant surprise. So really glad that we're covering it and we can chat about it as well. What about you, Seth? Um, so I watched it probably about two or three years ago with you. Um, and then obviously again, I think last Wednesday. And yeah, absolutely loved it. Same with you. I, when I first watched it, I wasn't too keen on it. But the rewatch, you can sort of appreciate more. And it's, it's not like it's a super complex film. It's just no. you get to you get to appreciate the, the cheesiness and, the you know, yeah. The message it sends. Absolutely. I don't think you definitely wouldn't have rewatched it with me a few years ago. It must have been. I think you might. I think your dad said you might have watched. May have watched it with him because, as I said, I haven't seen it since I was an early te young teenager. So, okay. yeah, I think I think I think it was your dad because I remember we were chatting about it and like we're telling him how we're about to rewatch it. And you know, he was talking about <laughs> how much fun he's always had with that movie. And um, yeah, just it's really. I'm glad that you know, in rewatching it, it, it is a lot better than I remembered. Yeah. So I first saw it when I was really quite young i think i it must have been like a a video like vhs rental from like um you have like blockbusters but in the uk we also had another um sort of video rental place called choices and All right. um i remember um it wasn't me because i was too young but one of my parents getting out with a bunch of other films and um i remember i remember watching it i remember thinking that the video cover was art was really cool but I must have been about eight or nine years old when I saw this. And I don't think there's too much that's inappropriate for children in this one, apart from yeah, like it's pretty, some of I the... think it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't want to say tame, but it's like there, there's nothing really like gratuitous or anything in it. And it's just mm. fairly standard sort of like action fare and just a little bit of blood here and there. But um, yeah, so but I when I thought to, to make a pairing with Videodrome, because I wanted to talk about that primarily, I was like, well, what? sort of film 
could I pair this with that isn't a David Cronenberg film? And then mm. um, just doing some research and diving down rabbit holes on Reddit. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people seem to um, say that this is quite uh, an interesting um, double feature. Um, and I thought, oh, well, it's been such a long time since I've seen this, like at least 20 years since I've seen this film. So I thought to myself, yeah, I'll, I'll pick this up and then we can uh, we can discuss this. And yeah, so the so I have watched it before, but like my first viewing of it where I can actually remember everything was like last week in preparation for this. And mm. um, yeah, I had a really good time with it. Um, I would echo what you said, like when you first watched it, it's not your favorite John Carpenter film. Um, yeah. But there is so much to like about this film in terms of... Um, it's it's themes and uh, it's message and just the way it's executed in general um this yeah just a lot of uh, john carpenter sort of tropes and what his style is like oozing on screen and uh yeah i was um really in uh, really excited to talk about this one individually and then how we can sort of um pair it off with video drone which i think is going to be an interesting conversation in by itself but Absolutely. yeah so how familiar are you guys with uh, John Carpenter's other work? Well, yeah, again, similar to David Cronenberg, <laughs> uh, John Carpenter is well, up there with as being one of my favorite directors. Um, again, you know, I grew up, I grew up loving his films. You know, I, I, I started watching his films a lot earlier than uh, David Cronenberg's, but yeah, I grew up watching Big Trouble in Little China is probably the one I've watched the most, and it's probably still my f i think it might be my favorite although to be fair nostalgia does play a lot into that sort of ranking there yeah i, I understand that it's not it might not necessarily be other people's you know number one choice but it's just it's got everything for me there and i absolutely love it but yeah i i love you know big trouble in little china and yeah just you know obviously don't, don't even need to mention it but the thing is fantastic oh, yeah. <laughs> um mm -hmm. and you know he is one of those directors where you know he's sort of the later films in his, you know, his directorial career sort of take a bit of a downward spiral a little bit, but I still you, would argue there are some things to like. Okay. Yeah. I was going to echo that, um, like most of his seventies and out eighties output, like are, are pretty, pretty good. Um, and there's some masterpieces mm -hmm. in and amongst those, but from like the, the early to mid nineties onwards, I really, for me personally, there isn't much to to like in in john carpenter's films uh um i don't think i've seen everything that he's made uh, since like the the 90s but for instance um he made one with james woods called vampires i think that came out in yeah. the 90s yeah. <laughs> and i watched that i watched that as when i was quite young and i remember thinking it was pretty cool because like some of the gore and stuff in it is pretty awesome but i rewatched it like a couple of couple of years ago i think it was a couple of years ago on the because uh, indicator released a copy of it yeah we have that release yeah, as well yeah um and the film looks looks and the press the the presentation of it and the supplements on that disc are absolutely fantastic as you can expect from indicator but yeah the film um didn't stand up for me personally <laughs> yeah, but, yeah I'm, not so, with, I'm not gonna argue with you on that one i yeah I, <laughs> yeah so um but yeah any, anything from the, the 70s and 80s um i'm a pretty big fan of i probably put the thing in my like top 25 films ever made i've watched yeah. so many it's my it's my go-to film to watch in october um i yeah. will without fail watch that film in the month of october i 
I don't know about you guys, but like in the month of September, I like to sort of plan out my, my viewing for the month of October and all of my viewing will be sort of horror centric type films. Um, so there'll be usually some films that I will revisit that I've seen before that are some of like my favorite horror films. And then I like throughout the year when I buy some older horror films, so I've got some arrow titles that I haven't opened yet, but I'm just waiting for October to watch them. So I've got a few Lucio Fulci films that I'm dying to nice. watch, but I'm like, I want to watch them in October. So I've, I've seen, yeah. I've seen quite a few Lucio Fulci films, but there are some of his classics that I still haven't that I picked up like this, this year or since like October last year. Um, so I've got like city of the living dead, which I haven't seen yet, which I'm really excited <laughs> to watch. <laughs> I'm sure I am. Um, and what else have I got? Um, I've got some other things, but, um, you got the beyond. Yeah, I have the beyond. I've not seen that one yet. I managed to That's pick the up best in the is it is his best like zombie type film yeah well i mean maybe best zombie like film probably would fall to zombie flesh eaters yeah. but <laughs> as far as his whole filmography for me personally the beyond just takes the cake i i think if if you haven't you said you haven't watched already if you and did you say you, you do own it though yeah i managed i managed to pick up um really cheaply i guess nobody was watching it because it was like a bidding one on ebay i managed to pick up like the the window arrow version of it Oh, nice. Yeah, so they, they can go for quite a bit of money, but I managed to pick it up like basically the same cost as what like um, a normal release would go for. Um, That's sick. Yeah, definitely yes. prioritize watching that one in October if you can. I, I'll, I'll, on that recommendation, I'll make sure that that will get watched in October. Um, awesome. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, so going back, I like to sort of plan out sort of like a stack of sort of like i don't know how many films but i, I, I plan a stack of films i'm like right these are going to be the films i'm going to watch in october because like october's the, the it's halloween and it's like autumn begins and it's just like my favorite time of year really so i like to make sure i've got a good selection of um horror themed films to dig through and then i've just it's lost halloween... track of... carry on all right Sorry, I meant to ask, is Halloween a big deal in the UK like it is in America? Um, I wouldn't, it's not as big as what it is in America, but there is still quite a, a big um, thing for it uh, amongst, uh, it's hard to describe, like you wouldn't have like every house on the street decorated with um, like Halloween decorations and stuff, but you tend to get a lot of trick-or-treaters, uh, particularly with kids um sort of knocking door to door begging for sweets <laughs> but um <laughs> um but yeah it's not nowhere near as big as what it is in america um yeah me, of course. Me i was always jealous because <laughs> oh sorry go on yeah me and my partner we went um we visited um new york in october um last year so we were there when there was um sort of like halloween carnival and stuff going on it's just literally awesome. everybody yeah. is dressed up there's like no one not like into the whole festivity of it all which is pretty fantastic um oh, but yeah to experience that yeah I'm it, was, so jealous. <laughs> it was it was pretty cool um and then completely off topic but the next day the barnes and noble sales started so i um picked up oh, like nice. <laughs> i picked up like uh, i think i picked up like 25 films <laughs> 
Nice. Built and filled you my take advantage of it. You know, yeah, you know, I know. You don't have to pay for international shipping. So exactly. Yeah. But I felt like when I was coming back through customs that I had something like illegal in my suitcase. I, like, <laughs> I picked up like 20 odd films and they, it took up so much space in my suitcase and it's quite heavy. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was such a good way of like, I, I saved up money knowing I was going to be going during the Barnes and Noble sale. So I managed to um, pick up a bunch Smart, of titles. Yeah, you got to plan stuff. ahead for those, don't you? Yeah. So yeah. It's things they have it like twice a year in like July time and then sort of closer to Christmas, November, like end of October, November time generally. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, we're going to gonna go in sort of end of October, November. So I managed to save up some money, didn't spend any like money on Blu-rays leading up to going on holiday so that I could spend loads <laughs> of money on Criterion releases. So that's where exactly. I got like, quite a lot. Of, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we were talking before how like, um, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over to you, no. over you, but um, I was just going to say like, we've been talking in the past how like when we eventually get to travel to America, like it's probably the next place we want to go overseas to, although obviously we're not sure when that will be, but we've <laughs> like straight up said that we are putting aside a budget for Blu-rays. Yeah. And we're going during Halloween. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Like we've, <laughs> we've got like certain stops that we want to make as far as like checking out you know, unique um, Blu-ray shops like Grindhouse Video Tampa yes. in Florida, I think. Yeah. I mean, obviously Tampa, yeah. Um, they're like a really, they're supposed to be a really great store front for like boutique Blu-rays and sort of all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I know for a fact, if we ever visit the UK or the US, we're going <laughs> to be saving up a bit just to, to buy Blu-rays. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so with that, I've just completely lost where we were going. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, we were talking about um, John Carpenter's output and that his best yes. films are in the 70s and then i sort of went off on a tangent and how i like to plan my october uh, film viewing around horror horror themed films and that uh the thing is something i watch every october and probably have done for the last like 10 years i think um mm. but yeah other th other films of his that um are really good is obviously the original halloween um yeah. the fog uh escape from new york uh as you mentioned matt big trouble in in little china is um is a classic uh but yeah as we, i haven't really apart from a couple of things that i really didn't enjoy i haven't really seen any of his output since like the 90s and he hasn't made a film for quite a while now i think i don't know when his yeah, film yeah, came yeah. out more on the music side now yeah oh, well he's a he's a very talented man even though his output like directorially in the in recent years and stuff hasn't been fantastic but he's a very talented musician and i know he's done, done some tours and stuff just like playing his music which would have been pretty cool to see but yeah so really uh, excited to dig into this one so do you guys know much about the conception of this film sort of like along the lines of video drone like how john carpenter came up with this or where Actually, he got his inspiration from yeah so we're watching the bonus um the one of the special features on the screen factory, screen factory yeah. release thank you uh, and cool. john carpenter was pretty much talking about how he wanted to make something to go against sort of like conservative american values he's very much a liberal you know lowercase l liberal and yeah and he just wanted to create this to you know sort of stab back at the conservative party because i know that when this was released, Reagan was president and he was, you know, cutting a lot of social welfare and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a point of, uh, point of a lot of like, you know, um, contention and stuff within America. And yeah, so John Carpenter wrote, they live, I'm pretty sure is sort of like a, you know, 
bit of a screw you to <laughs> the man, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Like John Carpenter is very much like against um, like capitalism, but particularly capitalism that's like left unchecked. So yep. um, mm. he yeah he um, he actually um, the, the the concept of they live is based on a short story called uh, Eight O'clock in the Morning. Uh, by Ray Nelson, which was published in in a magazine in like the early sixties. I think it was called the mm -hmm. Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction or something like that. And but it wasn't that story particularly that caught Carpenter's eye. It was an, a comic book adaptation in the eighties, which was entitled Nada. And from this, he um, really saw um, something in which he could sink his teeth into that would also have a lot of commentary on his critique of uh, the way that America was um, uh, conducting itself, if that makes any sense, at the time in yeah, the yeah. 80s and sort of like the Reagan economics or Reaganomics or whatever you want to call it uh, in sort of 80s America. And uh, yeah, so in the original story, it wasn't uh, the sunglasses that uh, gives Nada the ability to sort of expose the aliens. But in, in the original story, uh, Nada is in sort of like a theatre show where like the whole audience is undergoing some sort of hypnosis. And upon like the, uh, the audience awaking from this hypnosis, Nada is the only one that is sort of truly awakened. And from this, he is able to uh, hear the subliminal messages that the aliens are sending out to, uh, to, the, to the public. So it's not that he can see anything, it's that he can hear things. But... John Carpenter thought, well, that doesn't really work as well in a visual medium, being able to hear everything. It works a lot better. And it's obviously it's visually very striking when um, Nada puts on the glasses and it turns into black and white. And then you can see these skeletal sort of humanoid alien things um, mm. for what they truly are. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he also didn't, because um, uh, so many people uh, helped write the script, um, he doesn't credit um, himself as being the writer. Um, he wrote, um, changed the, under a sort of like a pseudonym and called uh, said that the script was written by Frank Armitage, and which is the name of uh, Keith David's character in the film, oh, which I, I thought was really that. yeah yeah yeah. So yeah, David, Keith David's character is called Frank Armitage, and the film's written by Frank Armitage, which isn't a real person. It's sort of sort of like a culmination <laughs> of all the individuals that. Um, sort of had input or was influenced by the the plot. So, yeah, John Carpenter was a pretty stand-up guy and didn't, like, say, yeah, I wrote this. He was like, no, there's too many people that have had um, sort of, like, input or influence or this is based on this. So he just said this is it was written by someone that doesn't exist, basically, and which I thought was a really... Yeah, it was a really nice touch and uh, goes to show that it was a pretty cool dude. Hmm. <laughs> So I guess the whole um, message of the film is pretty much worn on its sleeve, to be honest. Uh, as, as Sarah said, it's not the most complex film, but that doesn't mean that it isn't doesn't have a pack a punch in what it's trying to say. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it's just a, a scathing critique of an unrestrained capital. Uh, blah blah blah. Can't speak. <laughs> a scathing critique of unrestrained capitalism. So as you <laughs> as you when. Uh, nada gets these glasses he can see what the true meaning of like the advertisements on the billboards say like obey and reproduce and watch tv and no thought and sleep and stuff like that so it's sort of like mm. subduing 
the general public into doing what these sort of like the, the overlords, as you, if you want to call it that, like wants them to do sort of like manipulating like the way the public consume things and which is basically just a metaphor of, of, of capitalism. It's like feed the rich basically. Yeah, I absolutely, I, I think, you know, like it's, it's great when, you know, a film can sort of, you know, have social commentary that's sort of, you know, not super obvious, but I think it, on, on the, on the inverse of that, like sometimes it is great when, you know, the film, like the filmmakers decide like no holds barred let's just like this is what we're trying to say yeah. <laughs> and they just go all out and i think this is like a really great example of a film that does that they there's they're not shy about the message they're trying to communicate yeah and you know knowing that you don't need to hold back on you know communicating the message you can go like just full on in this case a lot of like great action great one-liners there's no there's no need to have like have a really complicated script like a lot of the ideas are mm -hmm. communicated visually and mm -hmm. yeah i just i think you know being able to do that as a filmmaker where just you know it's very clear what your message is it's just it can be really refreshing as an audience yeah. member as well sometimes and it won't like alienate many audiences like it's quite accessible to pretty much everyone who's watching it it's a it feels it's not like a family movie but it feels like a family movie mm. yeah, i know what you're saying I, I agree for sure so yeah it has a it, it's it's like even though it's got like a, a lot of social commentary about the time in america that it was made it's it still doesn't take itself too seriously as what matt said with like the really cheesy one-liners which are some of them are absolutely hilarious and are very out of place in places but you don't mind because <laughs> just because of the tone of the film allows for them so um yeah just like um obviously the really famous one like i, I came here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and i'm all out of bubble gum it's yeah it's a classic <laughs> it's line so out of place <laughs> it, it's a, it doesn't really make much sense but you're like okay Rowdy Roddy Piper, you you can say that. That's cool. I'm I'm down with that. Are you familiar yeah. with the um the decision behind including that line in the film? I'm not. No, please uh, illuminate me on that. So you know how um Roddy Piper used to be a wrestler. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um you know being a wrestler, a lot of the time when they're you know they're trying they have a gimmick or they have like a an image like they like to have sort of one liners like that. And my understanding is that Roddy Piper had like a little little pocketbook thing of all these different quotes that he'd like to try out in interviews and stuff like that and he was showing <laughs> john carpenter and he's like what about this one and john carpenter's like yeah let's try that in the film <laughs> and yeah like again it doesn't it's a little bit out of place but like as you said everyone remembers that line and it is really funny so it ended up working out in the film's favor i think yeah for sure uh, there's some other lines uh, in the film like um you're going to put on the, uh, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember them all word for word, but you're going to put on those su sunglasses or you're going to start eating that trash can. It's just <laughs> fantastic during what has to be one of the best brawl sort of fight oh, scenes in, in film history. Like whatever you think about the rest of the film, that fight between um, Roddy Piper and Keith David is just such an entertaining fight sequence that is like enthralling and like really you're on the edge of your seat and also it's just hilarious in places as well like the choreography which has a lot of wrestling moves in it um <laughs> sort of like a nod to like uh roddy piper's like um uh like a connection with uh, the wrestling world uh which was which was a nice touch but yeah the the part of keith david was actually written for him personally um i don't know much about why that was the case but when john carpenter was writing the script he was like yeah um keith david is going to um is going to play frank armitage and he literally wrote the, wrote that part for him which was pretty cool like keith david has been in so many 
like great films he's the sort yeah. of like a staple of of like genre cinema really isn't he he's just yeah he's like obviously was in the thing has he has he collaborated with john carpenter elsewhere apart from those two i'm not sure i don't think that that was what i was going to mention yeah i don't know that it he has been any other any any other john carpenter films aside from the thing but yeah obviously he wasn't the thing which came out before this movie so it's an iconic role too it was an iconic mm -hmm. role. I, I love yeah. his role in that film yeah i think yeah i think charles is probably my favorite character in the thing yeah. Um, yeah. and a lot of that has to do with um keith david's performance he's uh he's fantastic yeah, so that, yeah. that that fight scene is yeah, it's got to be one of the best brawl scenes that I, I've seen in cinema. And uh, yeah, so and going back to res uh, the wrestling of sort of um, connection with Roddy Piper, um, Carpenter actually sort of um, cho chose to cast him in the film based on meeting him at WrestleMania three. Um, <laughs> I remember reading about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess Carpenter was a huge wrestling fan, and um, which doesn't surprise me to be honest. And yeah. he, um, yeah, he met him after the show, I believe, or before the show, and just basically on his meeting with him, um, he was like, "Yeah, this is this is Nada." Like, and he approached Nada, uh, he approached Roddy Piper to play him, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll do it," uh, which is pretty cool. It feels really interesting that they. That they chose Roddy Piper because I imagine he was pretty popular at the time, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like a like Dwayne, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is now, and so having him in such a, you know, having such a likable, uh, you know, hero really probably helped drive the message home for all the families and stuff watching. But yeah, I also wanted to mention, you know, speaking of iconic fight scenes, I think literally the next day we watched Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee fight it out in Way of the Dragon. Way of the Dragon. Mm, yeah, and I thought which one is more iconic and i think i have to say that keith david and roddy piper <laughs> yeah is so much more interesting for sure and and like it i i love the fight scene in way of the dragon like again um not to repeat myself again from earlier but i grew up watching those bruce lee movies and i always loved that fight scene between bruce lee and chuck norris finally enough that movie the rest of it isn't pretty forgettable in my opinion but <laughs> i always remembered that scene but after rewatching they live you know even though i hadn't seen it since i was you know for quite a number of years now that i never forgot that fight scene and just re-watching i but i had re-watched it a few times on youtube like that particular scene because it's just so <laughs> comical and like there's so many parts to that fight where you think uh, it's it's over now like yeah and then he just gets back up and <laughs> then just chucks another it's, one right it's hook. like the end of the th uh, return of the king lord of the rings isn't it you yeah. think it, it fades <laughs> to black and you're like the film's over no it's coming back again oh it's finished no it's coming back again it's just it doesn't want to finish um yeah. but yeah i absolutely love that bit it's, it's particularly when like keith david like smashes the bottle and then he's just literally <laughs> got this stump of glass in his hand and he's just ah like, oh, and it's just uh, it's just magical cinema <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah so are there any um particular scenes in the film that you wanted to to talk about that you found really interesting oh, i mean i guess we could easily fall back on that fight scene if we had to pick just one but there are <laughs> a couple of um i mean you know when he goes into the was it a bank when he says that famous yeah, yeah. That's right. i think it is a bank yeah, I love that scene, and I I got a kick out of watching him get thrown out of the window again from that lady's apartment. I can't remember the character's <laughs> yeah. name, but that that looked look like that looked like it had to hurt. Make even <laughs> even with stunt doubles and all the you know the blow up mattresses, they would have fallen on. They just looked so rough going down that hill. Yeah, um, 
I loved, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit. But I just, I love the whole end sequence where they enter that, bit, like the mm, the TV iconic. building, you know, and TV building. It's a <laughs> dumb way of saying what it is, but yeah, that whole with the the last place that they sort of end up in the film. Um, I love that whole, you know, 10, 15 minute segment, however long it goes for. I think it's great. What about you, Sarah? Is there a particular scenes that you really liked? Oh, the one that stood out for me and really showed the ugly side of like that police state sort of capitalism was when the the homeless sort of shelter area was being like raided mm -hmm. and then they got that blind priest and they were beating him up and, you know, it was it was such a chaotic scene and... Yeah, and it was really funny that once they've ransacked this sanctuary, they come back and the only thing that's intact are the television sets. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty powerful. And then watching Videodrome yesterday, I thought, you know, TVs are a common theme. <laughs> yes, they certainly are, which we'll, we'll, we can touch on that a little bit now because there's, there's a scene where, um, uh, like, Roddy Pipe, uh, Nada is walking down, down like, a, a high street and then he's, he comes across, like, this young man who's just staring at a TV screen, like, almost like the, the cathode ray mission bit yeah. in Videodrome where they're, like, uh, people need their fix and they're, tra they're just transfixed by, like, just any sort of media on the, te on the television. It's all about, like, um, promoting consumerism and things like that, which is what these aliens are trying to do to this uh to humanity on earth yeah it's um it's interesting how they approach i mean like un understandably given the the decade that it came out in like tvs were tvs would have been like the main form of you know media entertainment and i just it's really interesting to see how each filmmaker both david Cronenberg and john Carpenter, sort of both explored you know the impact of the media on you know the average person and like how it sort of taps into the you know consumerism it taps into consumerism and like you know just i don't know like just a, a really interesting artistic choices by the both of them i think they both sort of communicated that theme really well yeah for sure talking about like stylistic choices i was really interested about how the sort of the the, mm, the surveillance in the film is is used so like the the aliens have these like watches that are able to like transport them make them like teleport and stuff and there's also these like spy bots there's a scene where like uh nada shoots one out of the out of the sky that's observing oh, the above. And, and it looks like something out of like a 50s science fiction b movie but i yes. think yeah. it looks like that on purpose i don't think it was because of like bad um budgetary restraints or just just bad um production but i think it was mm. done like that on on purpose as sort of like a homage to like all those sort of b science fiction movies from the 50s and 60s and stuff that i'm sure john carpenter was hugely influenced by when he was uh growing up and like wanted to become a filmmaker for yeah. sure but i, I mean, really he did I... remake the thing after all yeah true yeah, exactly <laughs> have you guys speaking of that have you seen the original no i'm ashamed no. to say we haven't <laughs> no yet, me like... neither <laughs> i've mm. heard it's like average um yeah. like the sort like the source material has a lot to like dig into but john carpenter like sort of got the most out of what was there yeah, um, but absolutely. yeah I've, I've noticed it's called, it's called the thing from outer space isn't it the original yes that's right yeah there's it's actually you know i we really do want to check out the originals at some point and you know like just to sort of see you know how the thing came to be and like what you know what it drew upon what it left behind and stuff like mm -hmm. that and you know another one is you know, we're hoping to get our hands on the Screen Factory's box set of the Fly collection as well, because we love, obviously we talked about how much we love David Cronenberg's The Fly, but I'd love to see the, the original 50s, 50s version. Yeah. 
And the other one is, I mean, we actually got it um, not long ago, but we haven't had the chance to put it on yet. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well as another one. Ah, uh, yeah, um, I've seen the I've seen the seventies one with Donald Sutherland. Oh, it's which, fantastic! Uh, and yeah. and uh, and it's yeah, it's amazing. And uh, um, what's his name? Um, Jeff Goldblum's in that one as well, isn't he? Um, is he? Oh, is he? I'm yeah, Jeff. Yeah, he, yeah, he's in it. He plays oh, a character I, I in think... it. Yeah, it's been it's been a while, but I, I believe you for sure. Yeah, I can't yeah, I can't quite remember his role, but I I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, but that that film I've only seen that one actually quite recently. I think I watched it um I don't know about a year ago. I've been meaning to pick it up for ages, and then um I got it in an, uh, one of the Arrow video sales last year. Nice for choice. Yeah, we... yeah, it's it's a really good film. It's one I'll definitely revisit in the future absolutely sarah still has not watched it i've been asking her no. to watch it for a long time but it's definitely one of my you know i only watched it for the first time last year and yeah i think it's definitely up there with my one of my favorite 70s horror films and we we're lucky enough to get the arrow video steelbook edition and it's just it's just such a lovely edition for such a great movie as well but yeah sarah definitely needs to check that one out sometime soon yeah hopefully. yeah <laughs> i think i think you'll really enjoy that one it's um yeah it's, it's the uh the, the visual effects and stuff in it like practical effects are really good and quite gru uh, like not gruesome but like disgusting as well in places mm -hmm. um yeah. but not not like overbearingly so it's just like really cool but um yeah, absolutely. yeah the um not to spoil anything because i don't people generally i knew like some of the imagery from the film long before i saw it you know the 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 pointing and the screaming when 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 the 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 body snatchers like identify a human that it hasn't been <laughs> taken over are you aware of this sarah yeah yeah i've seen that that clip a few times and I, I know that matt showed me a clip that's sort of similar in the 90s remake yeah we watched we recently got our hands on abel ferrara's remake from the 90s just i think it's just called body snatches i could be wrong though but yeah Is it's good? uh you'll be disappointed if you love the 70s one but I, i'd okay. say like you know if you're in the mood for just a fun sort of you know low low effort you know, when I say low effort, I don't mean <laughs> he didn't put effort into it. I just mean like, you know, you don't want to be invested too much in the film that you're yeah. watching. It's not bad as a genre horror film, but yeah, not one to prioritize, I would say. But yeah, it's still not too bad. Uh, yeah. So going back to some of the scenes in the film that I thought were really good. You mentioned, Matt, the, the whole like 15 or 20 minute sequence towards the end of the film where they've managed to sort of infiltrate the like the gala that they're having in in looks like the the basement of the the broadcast center yes yeah that, that was it's just um, a really great sequence and then we see that i'm never i still i'm on this viewing i didn't quite understand what had happened to um i can't remember the character's name but it's she's played by meg foster yeah um so the, the female character in the film it, it does she is she like being corrupted by them or was she with them all along um, I think she's can you, double agent or something. I yeah. I think because it's yeah, not made explicit. Bit, yeah. yeah, it's right. I was a little bit confused as well. I think she went back and forth a bit. Didn't she? Yeah, I think I think she was with them the entire time. The bad guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're supposed to initially think otherwise. Like you know, she you know when he, she throws him out the window, um, she calls up you know presumably the somebody. cops or whatever but yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly calls up somebody we don't actually know 100 percent who it could be yeah but by the end we're supposed to think that she might have been calling you know her alien buddies but and well, yeah. it just occurred to me now that when they're at that sort of um rebel meeting she arrives and not long after the police arrive to shoot them up so i think maybe yeah. 
she, she probably led gave them away the location. Yeah, ex- yeah. I'm not really sure how she found the location in the first place, but somehow she did. But yeah, you're right. She not long after attending that meeting, the you know the cops or you know the alien cops, I should say, showed up and shot the place up. And obviously, she was miraculously unharmed in that you know <laughs> screen massacre that just happened there. But yeah, I I think we are. I could be wrong. I think we are supposed to think that she was in on it for most of the time. Yeah. So Meg Foster, she's a very striking individual she's got like these really piercing like blue eyes and um she scared the living daylights out of me in one of my favorite childhood movies um masters of the universe star have you seen that starring she's got dolph lundgren in it uh, as he-man and then it has uh, frank langella as um skeletor and um, yeah 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 you're aware that one and she plays uh uh, well, her name is Evelyn, but the way it's spelled, it's like Evil Lynn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Um, but um, yeah, that film, I need to pick that up. I don't think, I don't know if you, if the Blu-ray is really difficult to get hold of. Um, but anyway, mm. that that she was in that. And then I was like, oh, has she been in anything else? Because she's quite a striking individual. And then yeah. um, she's in a lot of been, Rob Zombie films. I was just about to mention that. Yeah. Oh, so okay, she sorry. was in, no, it's cool. It's fine. Uh, she was in um, like the Lords of Salem um which was um sort of rob zombie is a really interesting filmmaker because some of his films i think are very good and some of them i think are very very bad he's a very (laughs) he's a very hit and miss thing but he's always really interesting like if you come film comes out by him i'll watch it it's not like if his last film was if his last film was rubbish and i really didn't like it and i thought it was basically trash if he's, if he's got another film coming out, I'll go see it or I'll, I'll pick the Blu-ray up of it because I want to see what he does next because one of my very favourite sort of genre horror films is uh, The Devil's Rejects. Yeah. And mm. um, and I still quite liked House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, yeah, that was probably my favourite of his. It, which is, which is yeah, I, I really like that one, but I, I thought that Devil's Rejects was just a, a superior film in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but Production then, quality um, was way better, I reckon. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Whatever, what like the Halloween films? I don't know what your guys' take on those are by Rob Zombie. I hate but... them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I I echo that. I echo that sentiment. Um, they're pretty pretty appalling. Um, <laughs> but then I thought the uh, the Lords of Salem had some really interesting moments in it, and um, I I didn't I didn't love it, but also I didn't think it was rubbish like the Halloween films. But then I watched um, Thirty One. And I couldn't even finish it. Um, yeah. And that is, is that very bad? rare. That's very rare for me to not sit through a film, even if I'm not enjoying <laughs> it. Um, yeah. But uh, I've lost train of thought now. Oh, yeah, because um, Meg Foster is in Lords of Salem and in 31. But in between, like, sort of some stuff, she did some TV work in, this, in the 80s. I think she was in Cagney and Lacey, if, you know, if you're aware of that cop show. No, I've uh, heard from, it. From the US. It's quite famous. Yeah. If you were to search it up, you probably recognize the faces um but yeah then she didn't really do much for like a great great old while and then rob zombie was like yeah i'll put you in some of my films that aren't great (laughs) yeah i didn't actually i didn't realize i was looking at her wiki after watching um they live and she used to be married to stephen mccaddy who um is relatively famous actor he was in he was a lead in pontypool which is like a weird sort of zombie movie set in canada and he was also in mother and he's been like he has a he's had a few bit parts in like, ma- like big budget films. But mm. I just thought it was very interesting. Like a yeah yeah Pontypool's like an actual yeah I know it's sort of <laughs> gone off track a bit, <laughs> but like Pontypool's actually a 
pretty unique. Would you say it's like pretty much a zombie film? Yeah, it, pretty much. Yeah, it it's off really good. Though. It's really strange. Yeah, it's pretty unique. I, I'd suggest looking into it since you said before, Sam. You're a fan, you know you're you're a fan of the zombie uh, zombie genre. Um, it's definitely unique in its approach to sort of yeah delving into that genre. Like it's set in a radio station and their radio hosts, and okay. you start hearing um, yeah, is it like signals or yeah. something like this? I think um, it, like the English language has something to do with it, and they can only speak it in French. Or something. Yeah, <laughs> again, it's been a while, but yeah, um, interesting. I didn't realize that, that they had that relationship. Yeah, yeah, we're well, not together anymore. But yeah. yeah, it's cool that um she was in a lot of Rob Zombie films. It's it's funny, like just to circle back to what you said about Thirty One, and again, I don't mean to keep shouting out our videos, but in <laughs> our fine. Please recent... do. I, don't, I don't mind. It's all good. Awesome. Yeah, I promise I'm doing it like for a reason. In our mm -hmm. um, last Blu-ray haul, we actually did pick up uh, 31 on Blu-ray, and I pretty pretty much echoed what I said almost word for word. In that, I I think he's an interesting director. If he's mm -hmm. released a movie, I will check it out. Um, that being said, I haven't actually seen Lords of Salem yet, but I, I do agree that even if a movie is really bad, if he, if he puts out a, another movie after that, I'm still going to check it out regardless because I think he has something interesting to offer stylistically, yeah, like visually. To pop culture in general as well. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure, yeah, absolutely. He's made a big mark. I was just looking up on the wiki of um that that um uh, Mr uh what's his name Stephen McCatty. He yep. has a link to David Cronenberg because mm. he was in um, a History of Violence. So there we go. Oh, <laughs> okay. There That's you go. A... I told you there was a reason we brought up that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is there any? Other thing, any other scenes or points of discussion you want to bring up about uh, They Live, guys? Hmm. Um, let's just, <laughs> it's a, yeah, fantastic movie. I, I think, again, I'm, I you know, don't mean to keep repeating myself, but I love, you know, rewatching it. I'm glad that I liked it a lot more this time. Like, it was a, wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did on, yeah. on the rewatch. And yeah, again, I just, I, I love how John Carpenter's like, you know, no, I'm going to talk about this. And I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to try and bury it underneath some, you know, really, I don't know, <laughs> hidden type of story or like, they, he's, as you said, he's wearing, yeah. he's wearing the, the film's wearing the themes on its sleeve. Like it's yeah. not shy. It's not, about coded, or it's not coded messaging or anything, is it? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I love how it, how it um, communicates it visually. Like the sunglasses idea is such a, such a great um, tool for the film. Like I love, you know, you chuck them on, you see the world in a completely different way. And I just, I love the different types of ways that they communicate, like, you know, with the billboards, the magazines, the TV, and yeah, it's just really, really uh, great effects. Like, I, I know, like, some people might find the effects to be quite cheesy, but for me, it just adds a whole lot of fun to the film. I really like how they approach that aspect as well. So totally love, yeah, I'm really glad that I rewatched it. And I'm definitely, it's also a really great film to watch in a group, I think. I mean, we watched it with um, Sarah's father, but we, I, it's the type of film you could 100% watch with a group of friends and just like laugh throughout the whole entire thing, not because it's silly, but because it's just such great fun. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with that. Um, one thing uh, to mention before moving on is um, John Carpenter's score for this film, mm -hmm. which I really, really enjoyed. It's got like a bluesy, uh, plodding sort of slow... I don't know like it feels like it's a guy walking down the street sort of like with a with a chip on his shoulder sort of thing which is what yep. nada is he's like come to come to town looking for work we don't know i love that we know nothing about the history of this character it's mm -hmm. um sort of really enigmatic person um all we know that he's he's just generally 
appears to be a really good guy like he's out to get justice on the, on what's happening to humanity and um i think uh, john carpenter told um roddy piper to write a whole backstory for him um oh, cool. for himself and then but he but john carpenter told roddy piper to not tell him anything about it but it was just to help That's cool. build like world building and um give uh, the character motivation during certain scenes and stuff because we know literally nothing about him we don't know yeah nothing he just comes to town with just like the uh, a rucksack and just the clothes that he's got on him looking for a work and, and and that's it that's all we know about him we don't know his name or we find out in the credits that it's nada but it probably that probably isn't his name to be honest and mm. um yeah it's just a really mysterious figure that's uh yeah pretty badass I actually wanted to add something to that. Um, we we're watching it with my brother's girlfriend and she noticed in one of the scenes, she goes, oh, well, you know, like we don't know anything about his character, but we can see he has a wedding ring, so he must have been married. And then we looked at the, um, we looked at like the backstory behind that and Rod Roddy Piper was married at the time and he refused to take his wedding band off to play ah, the character. Okay. And so I thought, okay. That's, <laughs> that, that's why he's got a wedding ring on, not because he may have been a married person. Yeah, exactly. I thought, oh, oh, damn, that, because cool. that would have been cool. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that, 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 if we, um, I wish we didn't know that he'd sort of kept it on though, like because he didn't want to take it off, because that could have added something to the whole mystery of the character. Like, well, why is he in yeah. town? Where is he got children somewhere with with his wife, yeah. or did his wife die, and that's why he's like coming to town to like have a new start or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really cool how like you know I know you said that you know they got. Um, roddy piper to write out a whole backstory but I, I also think it's really cool how sometimes you know in films you don't you don't feel like you need to know everything about yeah. a character like and he does a really good job of like getting you on board with him without even knowing you know anything about him really yeah because he could be anyone exactly it could be anyone and you have to but you know you have to assess him based on what they show you on screen so if you don't know much about his history you've only got what's happening at the time that you're seeing him and you get on board with him right away he's like very very lovable character with some, every man with some great mm -hmm. one-liners you can you mm -hmm. can fight you can punch on yeah you know like he's just every, every man's hero you know so like i i think it's really cool that despite not knowing his background you're right on board with him from the get-go so i don't know if you guys were aware that um in oh it must it's a decade ago now so it's quite old news but um in 2010 there was plans to make a, a remake of this oh wow that would have been good, yeah actually. which which would which had john carpenter as producer right um, right yeah but nothing ever came of it like it went through various development stages with like scripts and then like different directors jumping on board and then dropping out and then yeah it's like i guess like five or six years ago um the, yeah the 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 project fell apart but um i was all I'm, I'm generally well we've spoken about some remakes like the thing as a remake invasion of the body snatchers as a remake um and then we have some poor remakes by rob zombie making <laughs> halloween uh, but gen in a general sense i don't ever really get excited about uh, a film being remade i think there have been some yeah. really great examples of it in, throughout cinema history of of that of it being the case where like a remake is is really good and if not better than the original but yeah it's yeah. not never something that i ever get excited about but it's but something about the original filmmaker being attached to the project gives it a little bit more i don't want to say credibility but something that makes me think oh well this this is interesting if the the filmmaker who made it originally wants to 
like be involved in remaking his original vision then that's yeah. got to be something worth like pursuing like to watch or to be interested in in uh watching but then that also makes me think like does does the is he attached just so that he gets money <laughs> because yeah it's, it's his <laughs> concept mean, and stuff i couldn't begrudge anyone <laughs> for wanting to do that too yeah. but like yeah no i totally understand where you're coming from and no, I can only think of a couple of examples off the top of my head, but ones that pop to mind, I believe that Wes Craven was producer on both the Hills of Eyes remake and the uh, Last House on the Left remake, yeah, which I think okay. in their own really rights are strong. actually not bad. I mean, I like them more than the originals. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I think the original Hills of Eyes is really good, and I love the remake of that too, not necessarily the remake sequel. But um, I think one of the common criticisms for Last House on the Left remake was that, you know, the whole appeal of the original Last House on the Left was its grindhouse feel, its sort of low budget, you yeah. know, like ultra, you know, grainy sort of thing that they were going for. And the whole, and the remake in 2008 or nine or whenever it was, was obviously a lot more polished to sort of cater towards what they perceived to be what modern audiences wanted. Yeah, but, um, I don't mind a bit of gloss though. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I don't mind the change up, but I can also understand that criticism. But again, to sort of, you know, add on to what you were saying, Wes Craven was, I believe, involved as producer or in some type of capacity for both of those. So knowing that, you know, like I, knowing that at the time that did make me want to check them out as well. And as far as like remakes of horror films go, I, I totally understand, you know, people who say they're not in favor of them. Mm -hmm. For me, it's more, you know, I think they disappoint just as much as they impress, like depending on the film. But for me, as a, you know, I, obviously a lot of horror films get remade. I think while it might not turn out great i'm just at the same time i'm kind of just happy that i get to see more of that character i know mm -hmm. you could make a, an argument that maybe some people might feel like they're destroying the legacy of the original one but for me i sometimes feel like more is better i'm just happy yeah. to be seeing that character or that you know that film in a different way in a, in a newer you know in a newer in new style hands. exactly in a newer hands yeah so could make a case either way but in general i don't mind remakes but they can disappoint sometimes as well Speaking of Wes Craven, there's there's to be a complete um sort of tangent again, but I like tangents. They're fun <laughs> about different things. Um there's uh sort of rumors that a are you a fan of the Scream series at all? I love the Scream yeah. series. Yeah, so there's uh potentially gonna be a Scream five being made. Yes, mm -hmm. I have heard of um, this. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm like really intrigued to see where they're gonna go with that one. Um Yeah, well because they for the first time, I mean, Wes Craven can't direct it. Exactly. Oh yeah, of course. He's, of course, he's not. Yeah, he's dead, isn't he? Yes, he did pass away. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm not sure how long ago. <laughs> so, but just have to clarify the... that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's he, he, he did. He did pass. Yes. Yeah, yes. he did. Um, but I, yeah, I'm sure you're about to mention. But I believe David Arquette and Courtney Cox are both on board. I think. I yes, don't they are. About Nev Campbell, but they're probably producing it or something. No, no, they're on board as characters. Like they're going to oh, be yeah, in the movie. Yeah, 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 for sure um yeah but really interested to see like where where this where the where the plot goes to mm. go with it like I'm, i'll definitely check it out because um the fourth one i really enjoyed the original trilogy the fourth one was was good so i enjoyed it but i think i've only yeah. seen it once um mm. i don't I'm, it's not one or not i'm eagerly in, uh, wanting to revisit but i must have seen the first two scream films over 10 times each um yeah films i watched count yeah. they're so good especially the first one um i'd yeah. really love to to talk about that on the podcast maybe with you guys pairing it with something yeah um, yeah. <laughs> yeah but i don't know what to pair it with it'd have to be something where like your expectations or the genre is sort of subverted 
to pair yeah. it with something yeah. else that's similar to that but i'm sure we maybe could, like cabin uh, in the woods yeah i was just thinking maybe, maybe that, yeah. that's interesting ah you probably hit the nail on the head there screaming yeah. in the woods uh, stay tuned <laughs> listeners that might be a, a show on the a, a focus of the show in the future um but yeah so yeah really interested to see where um scream five can go absolutely and just to add on to that if you don't mind like just to sort of you know circle back to john carpenter in in some capacity um i'm pretty sure big trouble in little china is getting remade with uh dwayne johnson which is kind of oh. strange like i it's one of those movies again you know i, I literally just said that i'm glad to be you know, i don't mind remakes because i get to see more of the thing but i don't know how well that's going to be translated i'll still watch it of course but i also think escape from new york is getting remade with i think lee winnell attached to direct who obviously recently did the invisible man and yeah he did the original saw movie and he's done a few other things but yeah i'm curious to see I, I think escape from new york in the right hands could be could be remade i think um i, I again i'm gonna watch it regardless but yeah i don't know how well john carpenter films would necessarily be remade but yeah who knows Okay, so um, should we talk about the films as a pairing? Are you ready to yeah, jump into that? Good. Sounds great, yeah. Brainstorm some thoughts and stuff here. What sort of common themes run through uh, through each of the films, guys, that you can Well, you can I'm going to bring it back out? to Reagan. Yeah, very good. <laughs> it's always about Reaganism. Um, they were both made under the Reagan presidency. Both of them have themes of like homelessness and sort of social you know social class issues and especially like the control like the controlling of media mm -hmm. and like you know media consumption and i really think that's interesting how they both different takes on technology but they sort of have a like a liberal twist to them if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah for sure like a lowercase l liberal <laughs> <laughs> yeah like videodrome is is clearly sort of like a warning sign against uh the dangers of consumption of like extreme media so like extreme sex extreme violence and how technology is influencing the way that we live and then we have like they live which is like a critique of capitalism and the way that humans are being manipulated well in in case of they live it's by aliens but it's just a metaphor for corporations and organizations that basically control everything and sort of all to do with advertisement and making you buy things that you necessarily don't need because the world the world needs people to buy stuff otherwise you know organizations don't make money so um yeah yeah and it's all to do with like the 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 media's influence and the way we conduct our lives through s subliminal messaging in they live but in videodrome it's more not it's not subliminal it's well there's, there's the subliminal sort of uh, what's it called the transmission that gives you the, the tumor to, that hallucinates but that's also just a metaphor for the way that this media alters the way you perceive things so exactly. absolutely yeah so they both have a sense of um dread running through them and both both of the films are very much um sort of like a meditation on paranoia so obviously yep. max is very paranoid and through his hallucinations and then um roddy piper after discovering like what's actually going on in the world um he's very suspicious of everybody because you don't know who's who who's one of the aliens who's not and also which humans are collaborating with the oppressors it's all it's all very interesting and um yeah i think even though the exact themes and the way they execute what they're trying to say is different they very much complement each other without like stepping on each other's toes thematically 
that makes any sense. And it's funny because like we sort of make fun of conspiracy theories today, but back in the day there were legitimate <laughs> there were legitimate yeah. concerns for how the media was controlling us. And sort of watching both films uh, reminds me of the work of uh, an American artist called Barbara Kruger, who sort of takes images from magazines and advertisements and sort of alters them and, and puts these sort of titles over them that sort of show the subliminal messaging that's being messaged. So mm. obviously like that obey what, consume. What was that, what was that artist's name again? Sorry, I'm just going to look. Um, Barbara Kruger. Okay, cool. And As so, in Freddy Krueger. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's any relation there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so most of her, uh, funny, I, I don't want to bring, bring it back to Reagan again, and I'll stop talking about him soon, but <laughs> no, I thought, it's she a made really a lot good point. Her... It's a, it's a very strong theme through both of them. Like it's all yeah. to do with like the, the, the people in power at the time and having something to say about what is going on under their sort of, um, stint in office and things like that. Absolutely. And most of Kruger's works were produced in the eighties around that time. So like it was so much there was so much uh you know dialogue prevalent within that era mm -hmm, for sure do you guys or how strongly do you believe that this 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 um, pairing is like a great double feature could you see yourself obviously not so soon because you've just watched them but could you <laughs> go to say like like a midnight movie sort of like festival or something like that and sit down and watch these two films back to back and be like yeah that was a really interesting pairing of two films what do you think about it in in that respect? Yeah, so I think they would make a really, really cool um, double billing. I really like how they communicate the messages they're trying to get across. Obviously, we've discussed how They Live is a lot more overt in how they do it. But, you know, it's great to have two different filmmakers approach similar sort of themes and, like, to look at how they communicate it in their own particular, you know, unique ways. I think, you know, Videodrome's more about how, you know, des desensitization to violence and how consuming that type of media you know, to talking about whether or not they can change change you as a person, or, you know, mm -hmm. alter your actions or your perception of other people and, you know, how you act in society and whatnot. There's a lot of really great discussion there. And then on the flip side, you have They Live, which is, you know, a lot more obvious and what it's trying to talk about as far as consumerism and materialism and just makes for a really great fun watch. And they're both such great genre films. And, you know, while they're different in a lot of ways, they're also similar in some ways as well. And I think the themes that they explore really ties them together in a really cool, fun way. And I do honestly think that would be a really great double billing for something like, you know, like a drive-in would be great. Like seeing oh, them yeah. at a drive-in theatre would be never, fantastic. Never been to a drive-in before. We don't really have those in the UK. Um, but I too cold Yeah, I'd love to go to one. It'd be a fantastic experience. Yeah, we, we, we don't have many here in Australia either, you know, or at least, you know, even the areas that we're, you know, that we we're from but the double one just opened up actually. yeah there, there is one just here but like you know at the same time though you don't necessarily get the chance to watch you know like many drive-in old school horror films you know they usually are just showing the you know the new releases which you know is obviously fine and understandable they got to bring in the crowds and that but I, i've always been envious of you know american audiences where they're able to go to like a midnight showing of some like horror movie classic and just like watch them into the early hours of the morning i'd love to have something like that here in australia but driving experience is still really good fun you know you get to sit in your car tune in to the right frequency and just blast the mm -hmm. stereo so it's really really good and um in one of the ones that we go to they also have like a 
uh you know where you buy your food and stuff it's like 70s themed as well so it's really yeah, really like a 50s um diner. sorry a 50 like a 50s diner it's really awesome oh, that's, so that's sick yeah yeah i'd yeah. love to although as i said i would love to get some like old school horror classics into the drive-in yeah transport us back into that time it would be so such fun but yeah hopefully one day <laughs> cool so um are there any other films that you can think of that you've seen or done any research on that you think that would complement these films oh is it a tough one yeah i know um you know we, we've already discussed how hard it was to sort of venture out beyond cronenberg's <laughs> yeah. like other films you know obviously the obvious one is existence you yeah know, as sure. you said like it's like videodrome 2 but um say so it looks like you you thought of one as well what's that well okay so um sort of diverting from like body horror 80s I immediately thought of Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse. Oh, yeah. In that, um, how the relating back to technology and how it can isolate someone and how it can, you know, that your existence gets transferred online until you're no longer a human being. Have you seen that one, Sam? I have, yeah. Um, it's literally right in front of me right now. It's going to be. <laughs> it was, you, you beat you beat me to the beat me to the punch there i was I'm gonna so mention sorry. that one no it's fine i have got a couple of other films to mention so it's not a problem but yeah for sure um the other kurosawa um he's made some great films um mm. um yeah um i recently actually watched another tangent here i recently watched um tokyo sonata <sighs> yep. which is, yeah have you seen that <laughs> yes we it's have so yeah good. i loved it it's, it's a beautiful film i absolutely loved yeah. it um not ashamed to admit the uh the, the last scene had me uh, bawling <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and no, it's, it's really very emotional journey like very subdued as well mm -hmm. yeah it's, it, it just creeps up on you i think yeah um but it's yeah it's a very different film to pulse um so he's quite yeah. uh, he's got very different um filmmaking styles that he's able to um execute well um but yeah yeah you were saying sarah about um, pulse or had you finished your point oh no i'm pretty much finished but like yeah the idea that you know someone's existence consciousness can be sort of you know dominated by their online presence and mm -hmm. that that how i mean it has that like that underlying meaning technology equals bad which is um you know yeah them <laughs> explored in a few different things yeah it's it, it i liked it's been a while since i've watched pulse but i really liked that that approach it wasn't what i was expecting admittedly yeah um did kyoshi kurosawa did he also do dark water or am i thinking no of... that's um hideo nakata oh sorry yeah. yeah i don't know why i made that connection i think i put them at the same time yeah probably he, he likes <laughs> to um, do like wet sort of like long haired <laughs> black haired uh creepy girls films, yeah. films, doesn't he? yeah i wonder <laughs> what happened got... in his childhood yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah um but uh, yeah no, pulse is a really great one it's again not what i was expecting but I, I do look forward to revisiting that one it was it was a pleasant surprise but again not what i was expecting but you know still in a good way cool yeah have either of you guys seen repo man yes i have have you seen it Sarah? i can't remember <laughs> no you've seen it i, I loved repo man it's such an <laughs> yeah. oddball film isn't it yeah it's directed by alex Cos cox and it's uh stars um emilio estevez and the legendary harry dean stanton and mm. um there are a lot of things in here that have um, very, a lot of similarities between They Live and, and yeah, Repo okay. Man. I can, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, so some of the, the stylistic choices and particularly how um, the advertising in, in Repo Man is very much similar to it is in They Live. So like when of they course, go through yeah. the supermarkets and stuff, all the, the um, products just say what it is in, 
in it's like a bag of rice is literally a white bag with rice written in black letters on yeah. it, and nothing else <laughs> on it, and like yeah. beans or whatever. It's just a tin of beans with beans written on it, and it just yeah. reminds me of the scene where Roddy Piper's at the newsstand. Yes, and talking and and everything yeah. is just got. It just says exactly what it is on it, <laughs> uh, and, and it's it's sort of that's subliminal in They Live, but in in Reaper Man, it's literally just like bare bones. This is what this is like. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, there's no really, secret I, about it. Yeah, it's it's. The, I thought that was that it immediately brought that to mind when I was watching uh, They Live. I was like, oh, that's very similar to um, uh, the, the marketing that they do in, in Reaper Man in like the shops and stuff, and how it's all just black white packaging with just block letters of what the product is <laughs> with nothing else to like sell it it's just uh it was really interesting yeah um, I, I don't know why i didn't make that um make that connection before like yeah. it's an interesting parallel like i totally see why you made that connection i i always found i always love that part of repo man like it's such a odd, like odd quirky film and that that just sells that even more it's just I'd love to like <laughs> have like a prop from that movie just like displayed on like my movie shelf or something like that. Like one of the one of the beer cans they have, you know, just a yeah. white can that says beer on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I I really like that film. Very very quirky. I'd um, I'd love for you to see it sometime. Say it's just yeah, it's such a great film. Yeah, it's it's, it's really fun. It's really fun. It's got a really cool soundtrack as well. Um, yes, it's got like a sort of like classic eighties punk tunes in it and stuff running through it to sort of like. Mm -hmm um so you get the vibe of what the the tone of the film is and stuff and that's really good and then a film that i thought pairs really well with videodrome or that has some similarities is um a film which i meant well a, a director which i mentioned at the beginning a film uh um, what's his name <sighs> toshio sukumoto is that right Hi, shinya sukumoto shinya sukumoto there we go i got there in the end <laughs> um i was mentioning that i had like uh all of his films in from third windows and yep. his film um tetsuo the oh, iron i man. love that movie <laughs> yeah that is very much in the vein of videodrome in terms of mm. body horror and becoming one with technology and like um just materials like because obviously in the film he like sort of gets metal bits all attached to his body and sort of starts fusing yeah. with like scrap and stuff um obviously what the film is trying to communicate is, is is a little different but in terms of visual <laughs> style um there's a lot of similarities there in in terms of like fusing with your environment and things like that yes uh, which i thought was um, really interesting and uh, yeah i'm great I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's funny actually because you asked us before you know what movies we'd think of to pair with video drum i remember when i when we brought up shinya sukimoto earlier on in the podcast i thought oh tetsuo might be a cool one to mention then i completely forgot about it again <laughs> i um i recently rewatched it. i actually made my friends uh my two friends watch it with me because it's, it's really not that big of a time sink it's only like 68 minutes or something yeah like it's that. really and short yeah it's an hour and 10 tops yeah yeah and i remember we'd like <laughs> upon my insistence we'd you know hit up the, the local bottle shop we got uh, got some drinks and um we were a few in and we, i just said like let's just watch this it's only an hour of your time and yeah i don't think they're gonna forget it anytime soon and <laughs> yeah. just like the i i love you know japanese cyberpunk i'm new to it like new to you know as far as researching it and becoming more immersed with the films that sort of emerged from that you know initial thing i think it first started in the 80s i'm sure there were some movies before that that sort of led up to the you know the popularization of japanese cyberpunk but you know i'm really interested to see uh more of shinya sukimoto's work and i've even got a couple of other um 
I can't even remember his name, but there's another director. I think it's like Shosen Fukui or something like that. I apologize to any of those listening who know that director, but he did a film called Rubber's Lover, which I need to check out. And also uh, Pinocchio 961, I think is the name of the film. Um, okay, they're I'm both, aware of this. Uh, re- yeah, they're both really, uh, you know, well-known films as far as like where that Japanese cyberpunk genre was first sort of starting to rev up in the 80s and yeah. looking forward to exploring that. But yeah, Tetsuo... Again, I love going off on a tangent, but yeah, Tetsuo, fantastic uh, body horror. I would say almost masterpiece. I, I really, I, I un- that is, you know, if Videodrome is not for everyone, Tetsuo is definitely not for everyone, oh, for sure. Oh, it is yeah. very niche. Uh, yeah. Have you seen absolutely. it, Sarah? No, I haven't. Um, I, there's mm. one particular scene that I refuse to watch. The drill okay. scene, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I can understand. It's Yeah, it's not for everyone. But um, yeah. you know, I, I, I echo your sentiments on that, Matt. I think it's a masterpiece. I would go as far as saying I, I like Tetsuo more than Videodrome. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, yeah, but, I can cool. empathize with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, but it's, that's a, it's a really hard film to dissect and analyze like for yes. podcast purposes because um, mm-hmm. you're not entirely sure what's going on throughout the, pretty much the entirety of the film. I'm guessing it's some sort of uh, analogy for some sort of uh, grief or uh, sort of remorse or something like that. I don't exactly mm-hmm. know what's happening, but it's very much like a mixture between Videodrome and David Lynch's Eraserhead. Yep, yep. That's a, it's again, like, that's a really good... Um, I, I like that you likened it to those films as well because I can see the influence of those type of films on Tetsuo for sure. But yeah, um, maybe not one for the podcast because it's just so <laughs> difficult to talk about. But yeah, um, it is yeah, very um, it... difficult to dissect, isn't it? And like, I think, you know, like as we've talked about a few times with films like Naked Lunch and, you know, Videodrome and plenty of others, like it is fun to dissect a film and try and pick apart, you know, what's going on in it. But Tetsuo is one of those films where, yeah, you can have a go at it. But for me, it's just an experience. And I it's think visceral. it's, it's, it's very visceral, isn't it? yes it is and like again it's not one you will forget watching after you've seen it like it's just such a unique like just i don't know it's a unique experience it's really really great I rec- again i recommend it for sure but i cannot promise anyone like you know if i don't know you i can't promise that you're gonna like because it, it is very very divisive or at least i'd imagine it would be like i know for a fact that sarah would not like it <laughs> um but yeah just a really really great film um 100 uh, any final thoughts before we uh, close out the show, guys? Oh, just that you should watch all these movies we've mentioned. I don't know. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, Videodrome is absolutely fantastic. One of my top yeah. 10 horror films of all time, yeah. I would have to say. Um, they live, you know, not without its flaws. Like, there are a couple of things I wasn't too keen on in the movie, but still can't deny that it is a really fun, action-packed experience that you will definitely enjoy watching with a bunch of friends. And really liked the films that you brought up sam as far as like other ones that you might like to connect to it tetsuo is fantastic um existence if you know if you like Cronenberg and you haven't checked out existence and you liked videodrome that's a great one to check out as well and you know sarah's pick of pulse is also fantastic yeah. as well what about you sarah what are your final thoughts you've pretty much said it all um <laughs> i definitely highly recommend uh, you know kurosawa's pulse uh i understand that it might not be as accessible as you know, video drone while they live, but yeah, yeah, covers the same themes and it's a good gateway into Japanese cinema as well. For sure. And would you say out of video drone and they live, like, would you recommend recommend one more than the other? How do you feel about them as a whole? I, I do love they live a lot more. Fair enough. But yeah. that's be- uh, that's because I don't know. It's just a lot more enjoyable in my opinion. A yeah. lot more accessible. I know, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's more accessible when it's 
it's not as it's one that I could I could see myself rewatching more because Videodrome I'd have to be in the mood for the themes and the sort of like this the style of filmmaking. I do yeah, I do prefer I do prefer Videodrome. Like if you used to say which one do you think is better, I'd say Videodrome. But if you ask me which one would I likely rewatch more, it would probably be They Live. Um, yeah, yeah just because of the just because of the tone of the film and it's something i could just put on and and just enjoy whereas i can enjoy video drone but it's something that i'd have to like give my full attention to um, yeah. because yeah, of just sure. what's going just what's going on on screen and stuff yeah a lot more um you know video drone is a lot more visceral a lot of ways you do have to be in the mood whereas they live you know feels very low stakes and just yeah you know, just a really good popcorn flick that is great to watch with anyone family and friends yeah, yeah cool so um i guess that's the wrap for this show just gonna sort of we can pass on our um sort of um contact details so if um you've got any thoughts about this show or any of the other shows that we've done in the past you can get in contact with us at um let's watch two at gmail.com uh, you can uh, follow me personally on my instagram page uh, film blogger sam and that's an underscore between each of the words there and i also have a um budding youtube channel which is very much in its infancy i've only produced a few videos but that's also uh, can be found under the name film blogger sam and where can our listeners um find you guys so we currently have a youtube page um our channel page name is called amateur filmies and you know we do you know sam you mentioned earlier at the start but we do blu-ray haul videos we do the odd review here and there but um yeah, collection overviews in general, a um, whole bunch of different stuff. We're, we're trying to become a little bit more consistent uh, but with our uploads, but we've re been really enjoying um, producing videos and just, you know, engaging with other people in the, you know, film-loving commu film community. It's just really great to have a back and forth with people who comment on our videos and just have general film discussions. But yeah, our channel name is Amateur Filmies if you're interested. And also, if you would like to contact us via email, we're amateurfilmies at gmail.com. Uh, our Instagram is also amateur filmies, all one word, all lowercase. <laughs> yeah, no deviations from the amateur filmies name. It's all it's all the one thing. So as I said, we've got YouTube channel, Instagram page, and if you want to contact contact us by email, it's also amateurfilmies at gmail .com. And That's filmies, F I L M I E S. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I should have clarified that earlier. Made up word. <laughs> I can wholeheartedly recommend your channel. Uh, to any listeners out there if you're into sort of blu-ray collecting and uh film halls and things like that um i've been following the channel for quite a while and i'm a, I'm a big fan of you guys so continue the good thank work thank you so thank much you. yeah thank you very much it so means really, a lot <laughs> yeah it does mean a lot we really appreciate the comment and you know it goes without saying thank you so much for inviting us on to do this podcast we're extremely appreciative of it we've been wanting to do something like this for a long time so when you you know when you contacted us and you know told us about you know this idea it was always you know, uh, it was something we've been wanting to do for a long time. So really appreciate it. And, you know, we've been enjoying the videos that you've been putting out as well. Yeah, we absolutely. love, we love seeing your, was it a top 25 list you did not long ago as well? Yeah. I, I made a list of my top 25 films of the 2010s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I really loved that video. Um, hearing your thoughts on each of the individual films, but made us put a, quite a few on our watch list as well. And yeah, we've been really liking the videos you've been putting out as yeah. well. So we're also midway through that. your Criterion Part One video, <laughs> like your overall collection as well. Yes, thank you. I posted another video today. It's a very short one. It's only like four minutes long, but it's my oh, review wow. of the of the 4K release of um, Pitch Black by Arrow. 
it's good excellent i can't wait to watch it because i we love that i loved watching that film from ages ago so i'm really curious to see your thoughts and you know see the addition as well yeah no worries so um yeah just thanks again for coming on guys and i'm sure that you'll be um co-hosts again for another for another show in the future and we can organize that and uh, yeah it's been a pleasure so that's it for this episode of the let's watch two podcast um take care we'll be back for another episode soon bye bye thank you again thank you you have been listening to the let's watch two podcast